there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girl's night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, we have a customer. Eli Roth, director of Hostel and Cabin Fever, joins Quentin and Roger in the store today for a special two-part event, American Jalo. Join Roger, Quentin, and Eli as they give us the masterclass, discussing the origins of Jalo and the rules the genre must follow. First up is Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. A mysterious, tall, blonde woman wearing sunglasses murders one of a psychiatrist's patients, and now she's after the prostitute who witnessed it. Quentin, Roger, and Eli talk about how the villainous Bobby affected them, discuss the controversy surrounding the film, and reveal to us how the story changed from script to screen. Second, we'll take a look at the crime scene through Irv Kirshner's Eyes of Laura Mars. A famous fashion photographer develops a disturbing ability to see through the eyes of a killer. We'll be talking about strange plot devices, have Quentin read excerpts from interviews that shed light on the true history of the film, and listen to how Eli Roth would have rewritten the end. All of this and more on part one of American Jalo. I'm Gala Avery, and joining us now, here's Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Thank you, Gala. This is another edition of the Video Archives podcast. I'm your co-host, Quentin Tarantino. And I'm Roger Avery. And today we are joined at Video Archives by a customer. Yes. Hi, I'm Eli Roth. Eli Roth, the director of Cabin Fever, is here. All right, horror aficionado, horror expert, uh, and the 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 guru behind uh, the history of horror. The history of horror. horror, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So truly, uh, uh, um, one of the most known horror experts in the world. Tonight we're doing something different uh, that we haven't done before yet. um, Is a theme episode. Now, I've kind of put the kibosh for the most part on theme episodes because they're just so easy to do. 
I like there's a randomness to the choosing of the movies. And I like the idea that I can change my mind at the last minute or something can happen in one episode. And then, oh, hey, let's do another Samantha Egger movie because we like Samantha Egger. You know, that that kind of I like the flow. I like the there's a, a, a flow, movable feast aspect to it. However, I decided to save our first theme episode for when Eli would join us. It's the concept of American Jallos. Now, first, let me describe, well, all of us will describe what an official Jallo is. Jallo is a series of films that came out of Italy, starting for the most part, and starting officially, actually, in 1970 with Dario Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Now, there were a few precursor movies to this, especially some of Mario Bava's movies. Yeah, The Girl Who Knew Too Much. The Girl John Who Knew, Saxton. yeah. Mm-hmm. I call that still Evil Eye. <laughs> I like yeah. the Evil Eye title better. And I like the American dub better than the Italian version. Uh, it's got jokes that the Italian version doesn't have. Ooh. So the, while there were precursors, it, the genre kicked into full gear after the success of Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And, um, you know, one of the things, Roger, we, we were talking about earlier when we were discussing what a, what a giallo is, you were asking, okay, well, wait a minute, is... Uh, since a lot of these films were psycho kind of ripoffs, is psycho a giallo? I mean, we often think of Dario Argento. He was actually called the Italian Hitchcock, especially yeah. on the heels of uh, Birds re- of Crystal but th- Plumage. But there's a reason for that, all right? Because, uh, one, actually, I don't think psycho is a giallo. However, they did so many psycho ripoffs that eventually it became a subgenre unto themselves. But one of the reasons why they called Argento the Italian Hitchcock is because of the way they sold Birds of Crystal Plumage, because they sold it very much like, you know, uh, not since. Psycho. Uh, They sold it as a nonsense psycho shocker, you know, except the difference is it's 1970. So almost like repulsion, uh, more illicit thrills. No, the level of violence you were allowed to do in those films. And they they credit Pasolini for Mm -hmm. pushing the censors. And Mm -hmm. with all of his films, they were just like the censors Mm -hmm. sort of gave up. So by the time the heart, you know, the directors came around moving Mm -hmm. over from spaghetti westerns Mm -hmm. into the Jallos. But, you know, Jallo, if for people that don't know, means literally means yellow in Italian. And there was a company called Mondadori in 1929 that started publishing these crime novels. And they all had the same kind of cover, which was a yellow cover with a circle in them. Like, have you ever seen like the porno Holocaust poster? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a riff on that. Uh It's a very yellow color with a circle. And in the circle is a picture of like the main murder. Almost like the Warner Brothers box, okay, where it has the back, all right? And then there's the the image grafted in the middle of it. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. that's what it was. So people were very used to reading them. Then in kind of in the late 50s in Germany, the creamy, the crime film started mm-hmm. and they were a massive hit in Italy and they always mm-hmm. had an international star. So, yeah. And again, based on the literary novels yeah, the Edgar of, of, Edgar of Edgar Wallace. So they're all based on old world pulpy. Yeah, there was a writer named Sherbanenko that was like mm-hmm. the big one that they loved, but it was Ernesto Gastelli. Basically, they, they were crime novels where you had to figure out who the killer was and it's a guessing game for the audience to see if they can figure it out before the main yeah. character. That's and how it that's how it began until yeah. Argento changed the game in 1970. But I don't think the game changed that much other than the uh, the murder scenes got more graphic and they became more showpieces. The English artists that the Jallos are connected at the hip to is not Hitchcock, it's Agatha Christie. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, with they're all little... jumping off from basically uh 10 little Indians. 10 little Indians, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, it's kind of when Mario Bava t- turns to color for the whip in the body and really, yeah. you know, blood and black lace. That's when, you know, you start to see the camera work and the killer coming from the shadows and the mm-hmm. killer all dressed in black and black leather gloves. And then, you know, Fulci does one. I think Fulci credits Sweet Body of Deborah for being kind of the first giallo, he thinks, where mm-hmm. you're 
guessing and looking at the bodies. But I don't really agree with that. I know this is, but this was from Lucio like Fulci. A, yeah, yeah, I don't agree with. I, I really almost don't think any, even the Umberto Lenzi Carol Baker movies even qualify as Jallo. Is there like Jet Age chic? Uh, they're not even murder mysteries. They're not. No, but it's really like one on top of the other. Fulci. Yeah. This was Fulci's attempt to do one. But what happened in 1970 was Argento just basically. Suddenly the plot becomes incidental mm-hmm. and it's all about, like you the said, murders, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they become like musical numbers and they're so over the top and he doesn't worry about logic, like that crazy puppet in Deep Red yeah, yeah. that his producers and brother and everyone tried to talk him out of doing it. And he had Carlo Rambaldi build it. He just, he basically is like, you're entering my nightmare and I'm in control here and you're going to like it. And so Bird with a Crystal Plumage was so insane with the violence that after that, there were certain things like the black gloves, the kind of fetishistic close-ups of the killer's gloves, mm-hmm. penetrating with blades. The other thing that Argento did was his use of music. Like mm-hmm. the other scores are more traditional, but the way he used the Morricone music, yeah. the soundtrack is so almost insane and over the top that it really punctuates the quiet moments. Oh, let's go through the templates. Yeah. Okay, well, so basically they all start as big murder mysteries. Uh, as opposed to say slashers, they're they're big murder mysteries with usually a, 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 a whole cast of European characters, almost to the man. Not every single one of them, but most of them. I would say about eighty percent of them. You don't know who the killer is. Mm-hmm. They don't all have to have black gloves, but most of them have black gloves. Mm-hmm. Um, you're introduced to a whole cast of characters, most of them which will turn out to be victims, but definitely suspicious characters. That one will turn out to be the killer. How suspicious they are is almost comical. (laughs) Everybody could literally be the killer and everybody has reason to be the killer. The murder sequences, like like we were saying, are all like omen-like set pieces. Then I would say the last big giant thing, even though there's a few other aspects about them, the music, the this, the that. Finally, there comes a resolution of why the killer is doing what the killer is doing, usually told by the killer as he's facing the last final girl or final guy. And it usually has something to do with their past. And it is so fucking preposterous. You cannot believe that this is the reason that the that that the whole movie is going on. And the crazier and the more preposterous, the better. Yeah. Well, there's one other element, and I think it's connected to this uh, constant discussion of how stylized and how yeah. over the top, you know, the cinema tends yeah. to be in this. And that's that we are entering a nightmare scape always, it seems. Mm. Pino Dinaggio's music for Brian De Palma, mm-hmm. like really accentuates that feeling. You feel the longing of traveling through a nightmare. Well, I would, I would the, add the, yeah. the way the way that these movies tend to be shot, mm-hmm. the the hyper stylization, how things go red. All of you know, like mm-hmm. uh, you well, know, talking I, about. I, the I would add, I would add to what you're saying, especially when it comes to the Italian ones, the very Italianness of them, yeah. their connection to opera. Yeah, they're, they're operatic. Yeah, they're not. They're, it's opera. They're not in reality. And also that you know, one thing that Argento innovated on was he used humor. Mm-hmm. And in the creamy movies, there was comic relief. Yeah, and yeah. so Argento will have a weird character. The German like, cr- crime movies. Yeah, like yeah. The, yeah, the crime movies. Yeah, they're, 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 there's the same uh, Eddie Ardent, who's yeah, always... Exactly. Uh, yeah. Eddie, and, then exactly. and then there's this comical sidekick. Yeah, yeah. so that <laughs> yeah. was the thing that they did in the German crime films and that aren't in those 60s movies, but Argento, he'll have like, oh, that's the crazy painter, you know, or this yeah, is yeah. the pimp. And then often that person will wind up being... The killer, you're like, this person's too funny. Like, even in Torso, the guy's bringing the food and the milk bottles. Like, there's mm-hmm. always a character. But they also have a lot of POVs. You know, Mario Bava with Bay of Blood yeah. really innovates the handheld POV. 
And so that, that sort of killer POV that anyone can be a killer, that anyone can jump out at any time, and it, often it's the boyfriend, mm-hmm. that was all innovated by the Jallos. And one of the main complaints I heard, I remember as a kid, was that people go, but they're not scary. The music's too weird. And why is everything dubbed? They don't realize was that these movies were shot in Italy that because, you know, because of Mussolini, you weren't allowed to do sync sound. Mm -hmm. You had to have a sensor with you. And they just got used to the dubbing. It's just part of the aesthetic. It's Mm -hmm. like when you listen to a vinyl, it's like here's a dreamlike detachment. Here's another. And and so in fact, I would say Argento kind of lost it a little when he started doing sync sound. You know, when you see them with a dreamlike quality and the goblin music, you you have to think you're entering a nightmare and it's not all going to feel like an American movie. So you w- once you can, as you would say, like the way you embrace the aesthetic of an old low budget movie, mm-hmm. I think it's suddenly, you know, you really open yourself up to enjoying the whole experience. So mm-hmm. for people that haven't seen Jallos, they're not going to be scary the way American slasher films are, mm-hmm. but the imagery is so horrific. It just stays with you forever. But perhaps that's by design because by having it be super stylized, it allows you to distance yourself from reality. You mentioned the omen earlier is that Mm -hmm. it's omen-like. And I would actually say it's not omen-like. The thing that makes omen effective is that it's those those murders, though they are set pieces, are treated almost like verite. Mm -hmm. This, 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 like everything that happens, even like when the maid jumps out or Mm -hmm. jumps from the window and is hung, it's shot like they're capturing footage. Whereas in an Italian giallo, everything is like, oh, and there's it's it goes crazy. Well, okay, the omen is it's it's hard for people to remember now, but when you first saw The Omen at the theaters when it came out, you didn't know Damien was the Antichrist. You're you're figuring, it's, it, there's a whole mystery going on that you're figuring out right along with Gregory Peck, because they're not saying per se in the TV spots. Eventually yeah. they did, but not at first. You so think you, like somebody might be trying to kill the child. Yeah, you don't you don't really know what's up with this little fucking kid, all right? And so then like, you know, uh, you go through the whole mystery with Gregory Peck and you figure it out. Now, by the time they do Omen 2, we already know Damien's the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. It's William Holden is the stupid one who doesn't know it. And we wait for him to figure it out. And so basically most of the movie is people figure out who Damien is and then they die in a big <laughs> murder set piece. That's what I meant about yeah, right, where, right, right. where like the murder set pieces are are integral to the structure yeah. of the story. Yeah. And that may be true with um, Damien Omen 2. Mm-hmm. It, it's just that Richard Donner shoots the Omen almost with realism, the only scene that strikes me as not being realistic and almost bordering on Hammer is the scene in the graveyard with the yeah, yeah, yeah. the uh-huh. dogs, and yeah. suddenly you feel like you're on a set, you know, with the, mm. on the moors. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. But some, there's another thing in Jal that's going to tie into what we're saying today is that there's often something like you have to make one leap of like precognition. There'll be one fantastical element, mm-hmm. not always, but like in the psychic or in Four Flies and Gray Velvet, mm-hmm. you know, there's something that like a technology that doesn't exist, or you just have to believe. We have to buy that that person has visions. So that was something they tried to do. We have to buy the idea that the face of the murderer is implanted on the (laughs) eyeball of the murder victim. (laughs) Yeah. And once you can get past that, you can really enjoy the the slow motion decapitation. And it can be lifted from the eyeball of the murder I feel like that technology is... Possible. Possible. Yeah. It but strikes then, me as realistic. But the deaths <laughs> well, are so oddly, good. well, oddly enough, though, okay, when they have modern day serial killer movies and the serial killer fucks up and actually touches the eyeball, yeah. all right, and now you can get a, a half print yeah. from the eyeball. That always reminds me. I mean, <laughs> four, five, and, I, I, I feel uh, like it's more. Four flies on Velvet, I feel yeah. like that film is actually more sensical than uh, Eyes of Laura Mars's whole uh, yeah, well, cockamamie. Well, I think I, <laughs> which we'll get to I later. I don't believe the eyeball thing, but it actually makes more sense. <laughs> I kind of wish that were. True. <laughs> um, in Giallo films, is the straight razor the weapon of choice? 
Well, it started with that. It was like a stiletto or a straight razor, yeah, but the, actually, the, the answer is yes. But but any other things can be used: meat cleavers, yeah. axes. Ar- it's just a fetishistic. Everything is fetishized. The weapons are fetishized. The yeah. eyeglasses are fetishized. The yeah. the raincoat is fetishized. Like everything is a fouillard but, and torso. But yeah. I, would, I would say sixty to seventy percent of the time, it's usually. Uh, uh, at least in the first half of the Jallos, yes, it's usually a straight razor. Then at a certain point, they got bored with that, and then all of a sudden, it would be uh, come an axe, and, you know, or uh, Argento really innovated on that, where it would be yeah. like the knife or the axe. Then it's like in the bathtub, and then the chain and the piece of glass. I mean, they just get yeah. crazier and crazier. whatever it is, it glints light. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, but but one of the things about it though is just as they went on, the murder scenes got to be bigger and bigger and bigger. So it was like, oh well, it's just boring to slice somebody up. Now we have to boil them alive. Yeah. Right now we well, have to. It's also. From and we should just before we dive into it mention that from just so people have context for, after 1970, Bird with the Crystal Plumage was such a big hit. Between that and 1975, when Argento made Deep Red, there were close to 100 Jallo films made. Yeah, yeah. So this was a massive, massive. It's like there was like more than movies than Netflix makes. So what we're doing here is we're talking about the American Jallos. Well, movies that constitute what an American Jallo. Could be now. I don't think any of these movies, even though I think it's obvious that both Alice Sweet, Alice and Dressed to Kill, uh, have seen Jallos and are somewhat influenced uh, by them. They weren't setting out to make an American Jallo, and that was their jumping-off point. But I think they do qualify, and I and I and I'll be, I think it'll be interesting to go through the movies, talk about them, and then uh, and we can even kind of debate about okay, well, why do they qualify? Why does this qualify where coma doesn't, and does coma qualify? Even whatever, you know, we can we can discuss that as 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 we go through. These are the four that I think kind of work unqualified as 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 American. These Jallos. are the ones you pulled from the archives shelves. Yes. And I don't think there's a lot of other examples of this. I think, you know, they always kind of turn into slashers or they always turn into psychological thrillers or they always turn into a Hitchcockian kind of thriller. These actually, and I was really happy when we watched that, they stayed firmly on the Jallo side of the line through yeah, the whole movie. Especially in the early 80s, when you look at the sort of My Bloody Valentine or The Prowler, where you're trying to guess who the killer is. It's mm-hmm. not, they, they don't feel like Jallos. They're truly slasher movies. There's yeah. one weapon. It's used over and over. You're watching them get picked off, but there's there's a different style to these movies that make them jello. No, I mean no, no, I and mean, that's a good example because it's like I mean, on the surface, the Prowler seems to have all the same ingredients that Happy Birthday to Me does, except it doesn't. Yeah. Brian De Palma invites you to a showing of the latest fashion in murder. Dressed to kill. Doctor, I am not paranoid. Bobby has threatened me over the phone. She said she was going to hurt me. My patient was slashed to death and my razor's gone. There's all kinds of ways to get killed in this city, if you're looking for it. Dressed to kill. Murder. Made to order. Rated R. Dressed to kill. With co-hit, Eyes of Laura Mars will be playing Wednesday, October 19th, and Thursday, October 20th, at the New Beverly Cinema. At 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90036. Visit thenewbev.com for more information. The New Beverly Cinema, always on film. Always on film. So, starting off with the first film is Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill. This is from the video archive shelf. Not only is it from the video archive shelf, it's 
tape 270, one of the earliest tapes That's that we... easily the, one of the first tapes in the library and in an old, old mm. Warner Brothers And then not box, only that... The and, wood, one of the paper boxes. Yeah, one of the paper boxes. By the way, one of the best of the, of the Warner's yeah. paper boxes. Um, so, okay. Depending on the video store, Dress to Kill would be either be under the D section in horror or it would be in the D section of drama because uh, this was a classy movie that sometimes yeah. people would look in the dramas for it. I think we put it in drama. Yeah, I, I always, I always restored it to drama. Yeah, I think we, I, I, it kept finding its way back what do you into mean restored it. <laughs> well, the tape he, was he saw it, he saw it, in, he saw it in horror. <laughs> that's where it properly belongs. Yeah, he saw it in horror. That's, uh, oh, that's hey. what you call a video store term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we restored it. Yeah, he saw it in horror. Although no, that's not right. All right, yeah. <laughs> I put this in where it belongs. Put it, put it in drama. Restore my movies to the drama section. <laughs> okay, so now I'm going to read uh, the synopsis of the story by reading the back of the box. Brace yourself for the razor edge of suspense! Exclamation point. A disturbed woman, adrift in steamy sexual fantasies. A New York psychiatrist who seems to have taken on one patient too many. A beautiful call girl caught between the cops and a vicious razor-wielding killer. And the killer herself. A tall, blonde, elusive psycho named Bobby. Dressed to Kill contains all the heart-stopping elements of a classic suspense thriller, but writer-director Brian De Palma turns up the heat and takes them one step further to create a masterpiece. Michael Caine stars as the psychiatrist faced with a murderous puzzle. The sudden, hideous slaying of one of his patients with a straight razor stolen from his office. Angie Dickinson delivers a warm and touching performance as the sexually unfulfilled woman who turns to him for help. Nancy Allen plays the high-priced hooker who opens her elevator doors on the grisly aftermath of Bobby's psychotic violence. All the acting, including Keith Gordon's wonderful portrayal of a brainy teenager turned sleuth, is vivid and superb. Yet director De Palma manages to steal his own show. Since Hitchcock's death, De Palma must be ranked our greatest living master of the macabre. His previous film, The Sensational Carrie, the moody atmospheric obsession, the carefully crafted and finely detailed The Fury, have firmly established his originality and strength of vision. Just to Kill is his most cool, sophisticated, stylish accomplishment to date. You may recognize echoes of Psycho, of Clute, of De Palma's early work, but Dress to Kill cast its ingredients in a shape and form so compelling You'll see all the conventions of the horror genre come to renewed, unexpected life and scare you half to death. And even though this is not explained what this means, on the very bottom of all that, it says uncensored international version. And what that means is the fact that when uh, De Palma finished Dress to Kill, it originally received an X rating from the MPAA. I think it kind of comes down to three shots. It's 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 two different shots of Angie Dickinson's bush in the shower close-ups when she's showering, and then there's the uh, effect in the elevator during her, the murder when she sliced literally up the middle. Those were the things that were exercised to get the film an R. However, it became controversial because De Palma. I mean, it's only three seconds. De Palma made a big point about oh they they're screwing up my movie, and then he was joined by Pauline Kael who backed him up and said, look, I saw Dress to Kill before the MPAA cuts and I've seen it afterwards and De Palma's version is better. And then people said, well, we're talking about three seconds. And she goes, well, with an artist like De Palma, three seconds matter. Three seconds is the difference between good and great. 
And Warner Brothers, without making a big fucking deal about it, restored the movie back in the early 80s, by the way. You know, back when like the movie was only a couple of years old. De Palma's original unrated cut. In a pan and scan version. Which was one of the issues I had with the tape. However... Uh-huh. It has to be said, the pan and scan is really lovingly attended to. It's a it's a pan and scan movie, and then there are some compromises to De Palma's original frame, even though it's not done in scope. He, he shot it like 185. Sure. There is an effort and a charm mm-hmm. to make it work that is just so right there, that is just not there when you just take the 185 uh, uh, interpositive yeah. <laughs> and then just do whatever you're going to do. They know they have to format it for a, a you know a four by three television screen back mm-hmm. in the day, and they're trying to do their very best to maintain the integrity of his intent. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to restore the four seconds, you can take the extra effort to pan and scan it. So watching Dress to Kill because let's let's lose the Jallo aspect for just a second and just talk about the movie itself. Um, I've been widely known as saying that Blowout is one of my favorite movies. Oh, and you I, used to talk about that back in the day endlessly. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I look, I love Blowout. And, you know, of the movie Bratz, growing up, De Palma was my favorite. De yeah, Palma, you were like his Praetorian guard. Yeah, no, I practically got into And believe me, being a De Palma fan in the 80s wasn't that easy because there was a lot of people who hated him and yeah. then they'd want to pick fights with you. And yeah, he, he was polarizing no, for was, sure. I loved him so much. My dad used to call me De Palma. But yeah. It wasn't like Spielberg. <laughs> it was like De Palma. Yeah. And like, but, but being a De Palma fan meant you had to defend De Palma. When he was All upset, right, with, when he was upset with you, did he call you De Palma? And when yeah. he was happy with <laughs> you, did he call you Spielberg? Was that the, <laughs> no, it was like people would say, Oh, Eli wants to be Steven Spielberg. My parents were like, no, no, no. Eli wants to be Brian De Palma. He's, Body double. No, 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 no. At least your dad knows you. They knew. <laughs> you know, no, he yeah, understands. No. In the 80s, Spielberg was the, oh, he's going to be like Spielberg. All right. That <laughs> was like, no, 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 no. De Palma. As time has gone on, though, Dress to Kill has taken blowout spot for me as after Carrie, my favorite. I, I think Carrie's just one of the best movies ever made. Yeah. But uh, Dress to Kill has kind of taken blowout spot as the ultimate De Palma thriller and the ultimate expression of what De Palma wanted to do. This is when he has all of his tools, you know, given to him. All, all these studio tools are, yeah. are now given to him. He's well, allowed to do accurately what he wants to do. De Palma is the only one of the movie brats that, you know, for the most part, when at least when he did thrillers, wrote his own scripts. But he didn't start off as a screenwriter. He's more like a, a, a director writing stuff for himself to do, as opposed to Paul Schrader, as opposed to Francis Ford Coppola, as opposed to uh, John Mullius. By the time he does Dress to Kill, now he's writing, now he knows what he wants to do as a thriller. He's 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 firmly established himself as the new master of the macabre. So he writes Dress to Kill himself, and it actually ends up being a big script in Hollywood. People love it. He's able to get exactly the budget that he wants for it, uh, to be able to shoot it in New York with all the frills. And the studios were fighting for it. And then the studio that ended up winning it was AIP, who was really trying to really make themselves one of the majors at that time. I can't even count the numbers of times that I've seen Dress to Kill over the years. And I'm not saying that watching it with you two guys was my favorite screening of the movie, but it was one of my favorites. Watching it, there was something about... there, There was something about just... It's the first of four movies. We just got comfortable sitting down on the couch. We put in this really cool old video cassette. We know the movie by heart. And we sat down and and just watched it and just, we just had so much fun. 
And there was this interesting thing. We we talked. We 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 punctuated things and and made comments in the first half. By the second half, we didn't say anything. We were just completely caught up in the dreamlike imagery going on all the way to the end that we know by heart. You know, you think you've seen a movie a million times and mm-hmm. you think you've known it. And then you sit down and you realize that the experience of watching a movie isn't just the movie. Mm-hmm. It's the people you watch it with. You see it through their eyes. You feel their energy. And so sitting in the room with Eli and you and watching this and not watching a, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a streaming version of this or a Blu-ray of it or something. But or actually, sitting in a theater watching a print. Yeah, <laughs> but actually sitting down and wa- and watching it on VHS – I actually saw things I had never seen before in the film. And I I realized um, revelations about the movie I had never really fully understood. And this has always been my favorite mm-hmm. De Palma film. Mm-hmm. I think we all had that experience yeah. where we're like, this is the one that's going to require the least amount of work. Yeah. Like, like, we all know it by heart. We've seen it so many times. Oh, I almost questioned, do we even need to watch it? Yeah, exactly. I think it was You during, actually said that right before. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was at some point during the museum sequence yeah. that we're all just like, this is a goddamn masterpiece. Yeah. But in a way that we were like, this isn't just our favorite spot. This is one of the greatest films ever. Like we are all having these revelations. And I was thinking about, God, I never, you know, we're always talking about kind of the, the trans aspect. And that's something that's been discussed a lot, but I was like, wow, opening and closing with these mirroring shower scenes. Then thinking Mm -hmm. about the opening of Carrie and the opening of this and the whole thing about body parts, especially watching it in 2022 when there's so much discussion about gender fluidity Mm -hmm. and gender identity. And then sort of, we made that note about how Donahue is really, really sensitive yeah. to yeah. the trans guests in a way in that 1979 the, in, a, in the in way, a way that people aren't now, but <laughs> in a way that the movie isn't because well, people were more outraged, mm-hmm. you know, about the Liz Blake being normalized rather than the trans part. But, but it was just such a pleasure to watch with you guys and just to sit and watch. I mean, I've always wanted to like hang out. I wish it like lived and hang out in Vigneault Archives at the time. I felt like we were all living parallel existences. Mm-hmm. I was just doing it on the East Coast. But to sit and watch it with you was just like, I, 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 it rekindled my love for that movie and my appreciation for it, the mastery of De Palma. And now I have, uh, I have a little capsule review. There's two ways to discuss Dress to Kill. One is the masterwork of a virtuoso artist being given all the big studio tools he requires to make his auteur statement. And one could talk for hours about the mastery of those tools. Or one can view the statement itself the admissions of a provocateur that he is deeply fearful, distrustful, and paranoid of nearly everything in his world. And I say his world because De Palma gives us a self-aware glimpse outside his highly stylized Pinot Nagio scored giallo dreamscape through the real-world television talk show Donahue, where a person in transition is interviewed with remarkably delicate compassion for 1979. It's certainly in contrast to the homophobic associations De Palma makes between gender transition and homicidal schizophrenia. Aware of this, De Palma encourages a determined contrast between the hard, pixelated video of Donahue's reality talk show and Ralph Bode's fuzzy, dreamlike lenses, a look achieved by literally putting women's stockings between the lens and the film plane. De Palma further contrasts the separations of the two competing perspectives on reality by placing Donahue within a very specific cinematic device, the split screen, and specifically on the screen side of the schizophrenic killer. De Palma's psychiatrist character, Dr. Levy, states the filmmaker's perspective clearly in his postscript analysis, but we can see De Palma's sociological fears and distrusts throughout the film. It was so interesting when we were talking about that. We're like, I think you're making too much of the whole. Uh, you, 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 know, you always do. And I, I think it's too easy to make too much of the uh, the transgender 
aspect. It's just De Palma playing with schizophrenia. Well, taken directly from Hitchcock. Well, no, he, <laughs> in the case but, of, well, but, the, but it's specifically gender related because in that opening scene, I when we're noticing Michael Caine when he says, "My secretary's away," yeah, she's away. He's both being. The woman he's like, the, yeah, uh, he's he will, being, he will no, be with you in a moment. He's already that's, schizophrenic. But, but, all but he's that, switching all between harm, a man but, and a woman. But that's all harmless schizophrenia talk for a thriller. I don't think he's making a comment on transsexualism any more than Hitchcock's making a, a comment on transsexualism with Norman Bates and his mother. The one thing that needs to be talked about in this that we haven't mentioned is Dress to Kill falls into a special subgenre of movie, and that is the paraphrase remake. Now, there are certain movies that are paraphrased remakes. They're not a remake per se of another movie, but they wouldn't exist without this one particular movie's existence. And when you watch it, if you know about that other movie, that's almost part of the enjoyment that you have watching this new movie. Some of the real paraphrased remakes are absolutely Psycho and Dressed to Kill, uh, Bringing a Baby and What's Up Doc?, Mm-hmm. So those are things where like, what's up, Doc doesn't have the leopard and everything. But if you've seen Bringing a Baby, that's almost part of what you're getting. You know, now there's movies that come close. OK, uh, Taxi Driver comes close to being a paraphrase remake of The Searchers, but not doesn't quite get there. Um, now, and people have said about my movie, Reservoir Dogs, yeah, is a paraphrase remake of City on Fire. No, 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 no. I just. It's close insofar as I take the last 10 minutes of City on Fire and make a whole movie about it. But that doesn't qualify to a paraphrase remake status the way Dress to Kill does. That's like saying Smoke and Aces is a remake of True Romance. Yeah, right. They extrapolated one scene. (laughs) But in the case of Dress to Kill, there are structure moments and there are scenes that the joke of the scene, the the wit of the structure is the callback to... Psycho. So like, for instance, uh, the introduction of the Kate Miller character, Andrew Dickinson's character, she's introduced as the lead of the movie and is killed in a big showpiece uh, uh, murder sequence about 40 minutes into the film. And then now the narrative is handed off to other characters. It keeps going on throughout. However, my favorite of the Psycho Funhouse Mirror reflections is one of my favorite scenes in Psycho is Simon Oakland kind of explaining in words very similar to the ones that are used in Dress to Kill, uh, Norman Bates' uh, sexual psychosis at mm-hmm. the end. Okay, this is why he did it all. Kind of Simon Oakland telling it like it is. And we have Dr. Levy doing that in, in well, this film. sort of, sort of. We start to have the parody of the Psycho Simon Oakland scene with Dr. Levy but then it jumps the ship and now it has Nancy Allen delivering it to Keith Gordon. And what we don't see in the video is uh, Mary Davenport sitting behind. Yeah, because of the pan and scan. Yeah. Because uh, of the white loss in widescreen. Sitting behind, I think, Keith Gordon, okay, listening to the blow-by-blow description of how a, a sex change operation works. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the real comedy of it is realizing oh my god he's got nancy allen she's doing the simon it starts off with dr levy but then it becomes nancy allen and that's just a parody of the simon oakland scene you know uh anticipating your blowback on my thematic reading of a film i read the script uh-huh. <laughs> like and and actually i think this is a script that any aspiring writer actually any writer should read mm-hmm. this is a great screenplay this is a textbook on like how to write a script that the town is going to love wow um that's just not de palma's reputation it's not i know it, 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 it's not but actually in reading it it's fantastic and 
What De Palma is talking about mm-hmm. has more to do with um, his own paranoias and his own uh, fear. What De Palma is doing is what an artist is supposed to do. And I think it's defensible, uh-huh. you know, no matter what he makes. Because what you're supposed to do is lay yourself bare. You're supposed to open yourself up and reveal mm-hmm. all the things within you that maybe are even uncomfortable to you. You lay naked. I agree with all that. In front of the world. It's not just subtextual. It's actual textual well, throughout the movie. Like actually, after Keith yeah. Gordon sprays all the, yeah, the huh. white foam, yeah, I mean, that's, that ejaculates the white foam into Bobby's face to repel her away. Uh, afterwards, he's telling Nancy Ellen, it's a simple compound of sodium. And she's like, hey, spare me the Mr. Wizard lecture. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know sodium from Adam. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Adam being the first man. That's not an accident. And he underlines Adam oh, in, okay. in the uh-huh. screenplay. Uh-huh. It's underlined. I think just to support Roger's theory, De Palma opens the film lingering on the shot of the female genitalia, but it's literally split with the the man shaving and the straight razor. And that's what the film's about. He's telling you, this is a film about the split personality. There's the one side, which is Bobby, that wants to slice off the genitals, which is what motivates all of the killing in the film. And on the other half, it's the doctor who really doesn't want to go through it. A line is cut from the movie in the end when Mm -hmm. she's trying to turn on the doctor and she's like, hey, you know, aren't you feeling anything? He's like, what's stopping you? And he's like, well, my ethics for one. Mm -hmm. And she, in the script, and it's a line cut from the movie probably because of language. In the script, she says, a cock doesn't have ethics. Mm -hmm. And then she continues on with the the rest of her lines, and, mm-hmm. you know. So maybe I'm just going to go powder my nose, and you should. Oh yeah, uh-huh. uh, do this. And I but expect your clothes to be piled up next to mine. At the very opening of the script is sort of a um, a prologue scene of a human body being shaved with the straight edge razor, mm-hmm. chest hair being shaved, yep. everything being shaved, and then you come down to an empty. They just describe it as an empty space of genitals. Mm-hmm. And you realize in the script through some of the dialogue that Bobby has only recently uh, cut off her own genitals. Mm-hmm. And that this is why she's um, been at the uh, asylum. I mean, they push the theme even mm-hmm. greater. Now, in doing that, he's aware of it. And so he creates the Donahue program. He doesn't create it. He includes the Donahue program to let us know, I know what reality is. Here's a reality talk show. These are my anxieties, you know, shown in a kind of murder mystery. These are the things that scare me. Well, that sounds different to me than what you said earlier. And I and I'm we are watching it with an eye of analysis as opposed to just entertainment. And we got both. Absolutely. We we got both of them. But the fact that the movie starts, starts with an erotic scene of characters we don't know that we actually get to know through the eroticism. We we know Kate Miller to some degree or another by the time that sequence is over. But out, without any introduction of the husband or the wife or the situation, we don't know that that's a fantasy at, at first when it's happening. That was fucking fantastic. I can't think of another movie other than like something that is just completely labeled as eroticism that would dare to start off with an, an erotic scene that truly erotic. And, and put us into that steamy, dreamlike world. No, it's amazing. And it also really sets It galvanized up, us in the watching of oh, it. Oh, no, I mean, you're just, you're sitting there thinking, first, no one would do this like this today. But what it really does is it sets up the museum sequence, because we know what's going on in her mind, and yeah, we yeah. know where her fantasies go. You know, there's a that narration sitting there. originally, uh, not a narration, a, a voiceover. Really? It, originally, she, in the screenplay, 
I was surprised to discover there's an entire internal monologue going on in her mind. So we understand what, mm-hmm. what she's out for. She's looking to get laid. He says Picasso, that she's, they're looking at Picasso when they're sitting there. Mm-hmm. But then he goes ahead and he shoots the uh, um, reclining nude, the gorilla by mm-hmm. Tom Palmore, and she writes nuts. Mm-hmm. And so everything in her mind is like she's looking at art and she's thinking about nuts. Like she's thinking but about balls. Like she's making a shopping list. Well, you but, get that. Yeah. Well, you get that. And, and, and that's like, and that's like his, yeah, he's making these uh-huh. like little jokes and everything, but there's so much uh, of her own kind of, uh, you know, mental anxieties going on. Like you're, we're hearing everything inside yeah. of her head. But, okay. But that backs up De Palma's methodology that he's always talked about in interviews. De Palma's always said that uh, his rough cuts, as opposed to other directors, run shorter than other directors, because the thing is he cuts out all the exposition scenes. Yeah. And he wants it just to work as visual storytelling and then adds them as he needs as to. So when he's writing the script, okay, I got to make sure that everybody understands this. <laughs> so he makes it very, very clear on the page, yeah. but then he's hoping his imagery will will supplant a lot of that description and he can just little by little start peeling it back until it's just what's needed. Yeah, it allows the actress to uh, also understand like what's yeah. going on in her own mind. Although he does a pretty good job of that throughout the script. I mean- I believe it. I, 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 I can't wait to read that. I was, well, happy birthday. Uh, uh, thank you. Wow. <laughs> Where's my birthday yesterday <laughs> no, I, and so um i'll uh you, you may have this copy two things to bring up that, that are interesting in the case addressed to kill to actually back up what you guys are saying which i'm not even i'm not against what you guys are saying i'm just sensitive uh, <laughs> uh, 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 uh. no one's attacking de palma okay okay <laughs> but one of the things that adds to your guys hypotheses is the idea of the origin of Dress to Kill. And the origin of Dress to Kill actually isn't Psycho, even though I've made a whole point about it being a paraphrased remake of Psycho. The origin of Dress to Kill is De Palma's failed attempt to do cruising. Mm. Because De Palma read the book for cruising, which is a bad book. I've read the book for cruising. All right. Um, I love the freaking movie but i the book is trash but uh and you should say you love the freedkin movie not the freaking movie yeah yeah yeah, yeah the freaking movie not just what people i, I love the free i love the freaking freaking movie freakin freakin <laughs> i just want to clarify for our listeners at home well de palma had read the book and thought about turning it into a feature and he wrote a script that frankly when you think about it now deals with almost all, subtextually all deals with almost stuff. all the exact same subject of dress to kill and it's another film that's close to being a jalo no no well you might, you made the point when we were talking about the four american jalos you go Cruising almost qualifies but doesn't quite yeah. Clute and cruising uh, and what was it that, yeah, yeah. that disqualified cruising I mean, I think it's that the police procedural the aspect, yeah, right. that it's a cop, that it's a cop story, cop that it's hero. really a vehicle about Al Pacino going crazy. If it was just about the murder, it would be a jello. And it's every like, suspect, if Dress to Kill had been about Dennis Franz's character, it's it's rare to almost never happens that a cop investigating the case is the lead character. And that was one of the things we did. We Absolutely. left out. That's it's one of the things that we left out. It usually is. Somebody is either involved in the murders because of their past and uh, that just brings them into it, or they witness the murder or some situation or happens something. and yeah. then they turn into amateur detective. No, that's that's that. Yeah, no, they're not police stories. They're not police investigation. They're true murder mysteries with someone who's unqualified. Yeah. That's going to lead them into a dangerous situation. I mean, literally having a, a cop be the lead character almost doesn't disqualify it as a jello, but comes close. Yeah. <laughs> so he took his script for cruising. And then just adapted it into Dress to Kill. Amazing. Really? I never knew that. Big moments that were his big moments from Cruising, he just rewrote and put them into Dress to Kill. And apparently his his script for Cruising starts with basically the Kate Miller 
shower scene. It's interesting because uh, it, look in the book I wrote cinema speculation. I have a whole chapter on on sisters and like how De Palma became the master of the macabre and why he became because I don't think he's not coming from a horror film aficionado place. He's coming from a science place. He started off his career as an avant-garde, hippie-influenced satirist. And then by 1970, that hippie aesthetic was dead on arrival. And so De Palma has always been very aware of the politics of how you make movies and how you continue to keep making movies. And so he knew he needed to have a success that would draw audiences to a film. De Palma was given a choice. He had to like, I have to figure out a commercial niche, a commercial genre I can work in that will allow me to keep making movies. And I think the situation is, one, he's always loved Hitchcock, not so much because I think he loves Hitchcock. He loves Hitchcock's methodology. For a guy who can take apart a a transistor radio and put it back together again when he was 12, him breaking apart the components of what makes a Hitchcock thriller a Hitchcock thriller was, was attractive to him. But he's also watching two things going on simultaneously at the same time in the late 60s. He's watching the enthusiastic response to the French New Wave Hitchcock homages like um, uh, the Bride Wore Black by Truffaut and Claude Chabrol movies, which he can't stand and can't believe that they're getting as good a reviews as, as, as they're getting. But in particularly, he sees repulsion. Yeah. And he thinks of repulsion. Oh, this is the way you do a Hitchcock movie now. This is a Hitchcock thriller for a new age. And where. Hitchcock could be disturbing in the margins when it came to Polanski. Disturbance was the whole point. It was the whole enchilada. It was the reason to make the movie. Now, I do not think that he puts Argento as high as he would Polanski. At the end of the day, I think you would probably consider Argento a piker to some degree or another. Nevertheless, the not-sense-psycho ad campaign of... uh, with the crystal plumage showed him that there is a market. There is an absolute market that could comfortably fit inside of the horror genre, but also is, but is more important as the Hitchcockian homage genre. And that's what he did with Sisters. But I still think he saw Bird with the Crystal oh, Plumage. For sure. And I think for he sure. saw uh, Deep Red. I think he saw them. And I would actually venture a thing that there is more latent. Argento imagery in Dress to Kill than there is actually even Hitchcockian imagery. Yeah, it's Argento mixed with a little Michael Powell. Yeah, the shower is so strong an image him. that it tends to overwhelm. Yeah, but I'm more talking about over, the, I'm more overwhelm the, the people's the, references, though. Yeah, yeah, I'm yes, exactly. I'm I'm talking in particularly about the the the, the black patent leather raincoat, the, uh, yeah, the, yeah. the glasses, the, blades, the, the Italian look, the POV, yeah. the killer, uh, the, the slightly everything. fuzzy, foggy uh, quality the whole of the confu- images. The whole uh, and again, that's why I also pull back a little bit on making too big of a read on on the sexuality of the reveal of the killer, because also that's also just from Argento. We don't know the killer at the end of the bird of crystal plumage is a woman until we find out. And we're surprised. We don't know that the killer yeah, at the red. at the end of deep, oh, but both of them though. Both yeah, of I know them. both yeah. of them. It's like he took the best of what he loved about Hitchcock, what he loved about mm-hmm. Polanski, what he loved about Argento and threw them in a blender mm-hmm. and then creates something that I think he wants to make it classy and elevated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, all the stuff at the museum and the score and all of it. It's such an elegant film. I mean, the thing that makes this the ultimate American giallo is 
Pino's music because it adds mm-hmm. the Italian element that is missing from the other ones. Yeah. yeah All right. Definitely. But it's, it's in, it makes integral, the movie feel it, integral to the Gajala. The entire gallery sequence would be something completely different without Pino no, we talked about, score. It's no, we without that about, kind of longing, pulling quality of his dreamlike score. No, what would be interesting to read the script is because. Dressed to Kill without that music? What would that even be? I mean, it's just a different movie. Yeah. I, mean, I can't even contemplate what it is without it. No, it's like Psycho without the music or Jaws well, without know, the music. Yeah. You know, directors like children look to their forefathers and with through imitation, you learn how to become your own person. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like a child looks to a parent and, and imitates in order to learn how to become a, a person. So mm-hmm. too does a filmmaker. We end up becoming people of many... Uh, parents, you know, and De Palma has his lineages that we can look at and say he's, you know, a composite of all of these different people. He is literally a mm-hmm. schizophrenic composite as a filmmaker of these mm-hmm. other filmmakers that he so admires that he looks to, but he's still his own person. I would actually even go so far as to say that of all the movies that have the lead characters turn amateur detective and try to figure out what's going on, uh, Dress to Kill might be my favorite. And the the team of uh, Keith Gordon's Peter Miller, the young boy, and uh, Nancy Allen, the high-priced prostitute, teaming up together in one of the most charming double acts I've ever seen in a horror film. I mean, they're, they're, they're just kind of, they're so charming together. They're so lovely. And without hitting a sexual aspect, there's something romantic about them together. It, it's and, without, uh, without ever pushing any kind of romance at all. He never yeah. pushes it at all. He doesn't push it at all, but there's something romantic about it that gives it a sexy vibe without sexuality per se. I'm, I'm not looking necessarily for, well, I'm saying I'm not looking for Keith Gordon to score. I'm kind of thinking if she didn't have that dream, he might have scored over the course of that weekend. I, I, don't, <laughs> mean, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to ruin the script for you, but in the uh, screenplay, she wakes up with a John in a hotel room screaming. Wow. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, that actually sounds better. <laughs> that sounds better. That sounds way but better. I think, I think, it's, it was a shock to discover because it was sounds, like- That sounds way better. And he's like, what? What the fuck? Are you crazy? It's pretty cool. But I think I think the reason he changed it is because he actually realized how the audience had a connection to, to Keith also, Gordon and Nancy Allen. Keith and they wanted Gordon. to- well, for, Touch base with for me, Keith Gordon is my entry to the movie. I was his age or maybe a little yeah. younger when this movie came. I, 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 I think Keith and I are close to the same Probably, age. Yeah. And, and he looked and behaved and dressed exactly like this friend of ours, Scott, who mm-hmm. also uh, yeah. was from the video store days. As if Scott watched Dressed to Kill and go, I'm going to dress like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to behave like that. Yeah. I'm going to like, you know, do that. He was yeah. dressed to Keith. Yeah. <laughs> dressed to Keith. I think one of the reasons we love Keith Gordon growing up watching those movies was he wasn't like the typical good looking macho 80s leading guy. Like he was so much like us, mm-hmm. yeah. like the nerdy science guy. He's Brian De Palma, that, literally. But he treats architect. Liz with such respect. He never judges her as the yeah, movie yeah. never judges her. She and judges think, him briefly. She says, hey, you're just a kid. And he's like, yeah, I'm the kid that saved your ass. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then finally she's like, okay, but what a kid. Yeah. <laughs> and it's such, but it's so charming. Sweet. I like I it mean, when yeah. she says that. She's so amazing, Nancy Allen. You make a really good point. It's really cool that Peter Miller doesn't judge Liz Blake for what she does. At all. That's really cool. That's a really, really cool progressive aspect from him that doesn't scream as such it just that's why they're so good together and it's what the movie does so well and it's what people were so upset about at the time like Mm -hmm. how dare you not 
judge or make a comment on this woman. Like you never, and even Dennis Franz is just like, he basically empowers her. He's like, look, I can't get in there, but you can. Hey, do I know the detective you. <laughs> work for me. Like I'm, my hands are tied. Like oh, you what? got, you got more at stake at this than I do. Hey, yeah, yeah, your ass. Yeah, yeah your yeah. ass. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but it's even kind of interesting that like Dennis Franz, who bust her balls, all right, through the whole film, only to find out at the end, well, no, that we just wanted the appointment book, all right? He was actually looking out for her. He never really thought she did. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't going to arrest her. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the guy he's been right, in the whole fucking yeah. movie. Well, <laughs> Ted from out of town, we'll get Ted in town oh, and downtown. <laughs> oh, this Ted from out of town, we better get him in town <laughs> and downtown. <laughs> Finally got a, a statement to the, <laughs> who and what he saw. And also the locations i mean like that she calls from a payphone on the river just the way yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. choice of locations all those things that we well again thought about it's the return of de palma's new york because de palma you know spent a, his whole early career filming new york yeah. but he's a different guy he's by not the time greenwich he, village by the time he's he films dressed to kill now he's yeah now it's about the med now if he's got a if he's running out of an apartment it's on the fucking it's upper, upper west side yeah. yeah and that's the world that he he explores this time. It's not Greenwich Village. No, it's, it's not the, so. It's home. wealthy people and people yeah. cheating and bored people and mm-hmm. all. Of but everybody getting laid after lunch. <laughs> yeah, afford, by the way, psychiatrists, <laughs> yeah. that was a rare thing that you yeah, could yeah. afford a psychiatrist uh, pardon, back Pardon then. my language, but uh, he's giving her a blow by blow. <laughs> the cab driver gave me a blow by blow. Of, uh, <laughs> she went down on him in the cab, yeah. for Christ's sake. I got a cabbie giving me a <laughs> yeah, blow by blow. <laughs> <laughs> Start to finish. There's not a weak shot, not a weak moment, no fat. We just like we were, we, like you said, we yeah. couldn't stop talking about how much we loved it. And then we were silent just watching yeah. it. Now, one of the things you mentioned is like the script has an early scene with Bobby shaving. Yeah, shaving her entire hair, body yeah. and then kind of revealing that there's the, the castration. Uh, I, I I believe it's revealing um, no genitalia. And, uh-huh. and actually, it's interesting in the script. Bobby is merely described as a blonde mm-hmm. with an E. Um, mm-hmm. My daughter informed me that when blonde is spelled with an E, it means it's feminine. Oh, right. okay, go. Is Bobby with an I or a Y in the script? With an I. I mean, there's actually an interesting moment in the screenplay, which has been cut out. And you can actually, it's the one moment in the movie where I can tell something's been cut, is with the uh, with the doctor mm-hmm. on the- uh, Do- in, Do- Do- Dr. Levy and Dr. Dr. Elliot? Le- yeah, Dr. Levy and Dr. Elliot. And they have different names in the screenplay. Michael Caine's character. Because Bobby isn't a true transsexual. And this has been cut from the movie. Bobby isn't a true transsexual. A transsexual has an unalterable belief that she is of one sex trapped, and that's in quotes, in the body of the other. Bobby is totally unaware of her other self. She's really a dangerous schizophrenic personality. Okay, but no, that's De Palma taking it out of the realm of editorializing on transsexuals and and turning it into Norman Bates, a schizophrenic character that does not know the existence of the two different personalities, that can have conversations with each other without knowing that they're the same person. It's unfortunate that that line is trimmed out of the movie. For whatever reason, it had to be cut, probably because it leaned too heavily into revealing- What's going on. The reveal, which to audiences at that time would have been a reveal. Mm -hmm. And so it probably- you know, was too much, but it's, it actually is unfortunate because it is one of his defenses. The other one mm-hmm. being that the Peter character actually, as a scientist suggests, well, you know, w- with no compunction, yeah. you know, maybe my next experiment will be to make a new version of me or, yeah. or make, to make a woman, to build no, a yeah, woman yeah. He out find, of myself. He finds it intriguing. The idea of the, the scientific 
a medical application. Of Correct. It all. And and the, her final suggestion in line to him is better to stick with your computer. Stick which, with your Peter. <laughs> which, yeah, which is which his mother, which his mother has established uh, is named Peter. Peter. Yes, to stick with your Peter. Yeah, play with your Peter. But now one thing that's interesting is uh, while I haven't read the script, I have read the novelization. Which De Palma got co-writing credit on, but I don't think he wrote shit. I think Campbell Black, who wrote the Raiders of the Lost Ark novelization, mm. I, I think he just, I think he used a lot of De Palma's script. And mm. so De Palma got co-writing credit on it. But one of the things that's interesting about it is the fact of, and almost, again, ties it to cruising, the fact that so many people had to play Bobby in order to create one Bobby. It is kind of wonky. I think there's a, I think you can use the term wonky to describe it, but but he pulls it off. It, it all works. I almost can't believe that that works as well as it does. Because once you see Michael Caine in the makeup and the costume, you know that is not who we've been watching through the entire film. In any way, shape, or form, that is not who we've been watching in the entire film. But he still makes it work. All right, so there's the cop woman who's tailing uh, 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 Peter, who is also playing Bobby as well. Then there's William Finley, who's playing Bobby's uh, character on all the uh, phone voice messages. And then there's Michael Caine at William the Finley, end. who's the Phantom in the Phantom, Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah. Yeah. But because of that type of tomfoolery that he's doing, he's never allowed to have just a regular scene of Bobby. Just right. being Bobby. But the paperback doesn't have those problems. So there's scenes with Bobby. There, there, there's a, the opening chapter of the book is a scene of but Bobby in a bar Bobby's trying to pick up a guy. Bar. Okay. Hmm. Trying to pick up a guy and and basically realizing, as Nancy Allen says, once you take off all the clothes, now the you know, now the jig's up, and it's great. It's uh, Bobby is my favorite De Palma killer of all of all the villains of all De Palma's villains. Uh, Bobby's my favorite, and it's it's a negative in the movie that we never have a scene from Bobby's perspective. But it's, it's kind of great that the book offers up one. It helps to humanize mm-hmm. uh, the character. I mean, and you feel a glimpse of that in the script, just uh, you know, barely a glimpse. Well, the voice message you, is as close as you're going to get yeah. on the answering machine. Uh, I don't know if William Finley's voice humanizes Bobby, make Bobby sound like a crazy shithouse yeah. fucking rat. Don't or, make uh, me a bad girl again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, say this, that's the closest we get. Yeah, that's the closest yeah. we that's get. That's all yeah. we get. Yeah. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. In Nashville, you can hear great country music. In Memphis, you can hear great southern blues. And in the Great Smoky Mountains, you can see beautiful sunsets. But in Chattanooga, you can drink the best beer brewed in Tennessee for the last 40 years. Old Chattanooga. Still brewed at the old Chattanooga Brewery at Kingston Pike and old Chattanooga Road. So bring home a six-pack of Southern hospitality. Bring home a six-pack of old Chattanooga beer. Old Chattanooga beer. 
the best beer this side of Texas. And we're back and joined by Gala Avery wearing a rare dress. All right, for I you. I am dressed up for my Giallo week. Oh my God, you are. You're actually yes. dressed a little am, bit I'm like Bobby. She, yeah. I'm theme dressed right now. If you just had dark sunglasses and a blonde, and a blonde Gloria wig, wig all right, she, she, would be Bobby. Bobby. Yeah, she yeah. literally said today, I was like, wow, you're dressed up. And she said, yeah, I'm, this is Giallo week. <laughs> right on. <laughs> She's dressed to kill. <laughs> yeah. Right. She is dressed to kill. Well, hello, Quentin. Hello, Roger. Hi, Eli. I'm so Hi, glad God. that you're on the show. I'm so excited that we're talking about Giallo. One thing you mentioned was the violence of a Giallo film, and I actually pulled a leaflet calling for a protest against Dress to Kill that was distributed by San, um, by in San Francisco by the Women Against Violence and Pornography in yeah. Media in 1980. My favorite part was this part in all caps, which actually plays into something that you said earlier, Quentin. Mm. From the insidious combination of violence and sexuality in its promotional material to scene after scene of women raped, killed, or nearly killed, Dressed to Kill is a masterwork of misogyny. The distorted image of a psychotic male transvestite makes all sexual minorities appear sick and dangerous. Dressed to Kill follows a new trend in films. Witness the gay male killer of cruising, the lesbian rapist of windows, and now the killer transvestite of Dressed to Kill. Though Kate Miller dies and Liz Blake bleeds time and again, three scenes, the rape, the necrophilia, and the slashing scene were to have happened in women's minds. As if the eroticization of violence were not enough, Dressed to Kill asserts that women crave physical abuse, that humiliation, pain, and brutality are essential to our sexuality. If this film succeeds, killing women may become the greatest turn-on of the 80s. Join our protest. Marked with us on August 28th. One of the things that they reacted to especially was when it came to slasher films, all the established critics working for newspapers and magazines like Time or Newsweek and everything took a dim view of them and talked about how they didn't appreciate the sexual politics and just called them these sleazy movies. And then Siskel and Ebert had a whole diatribe against slasher films. Then Dress to Kill comes out at the height of the slasher film genre, 1980, the height of the slasher film genre. And then it gets rhapsodous reviews from the most established critic, especially female film critics. Pauline Kael gives it a rave. Sheila Benson, surprisingly yeah, enough, yeah. like raved that, about it beyond the beyond. I remember that. Which I, was like, whoa, yeah, Sheila Benson. It was All weird. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the fact that this was getting this high art prestige reviews that in particularly bugged this group. And that was one of the things they were responding against was this being deemed as art by the high society film critics and especially the female film critics. Well, as the woman in the room, I love Dress to Kill. <laughs> I think it's an awesome movie. Um, I've, I've seen this movie before, so it was a treat to watch it again. And I thought to myself, am I, I know the ending. Am I going to be surprised? Am I going to have fun rewatching it? Hell yeah, I did. It was mm. it was a blast. The cinematic language that De Palma uses in his films, in all of his films, but specifically in this film, he crosses the line, actually intentionally looking mm. into the mirror at the very first uh, therapy scene, mm. 
when he becomes yeah. Bobby. Yeah. yeah. Like it's deliciously it's juicy. Ju- it's jarring it's a literal, on purpose. Literal yeah. line cross. Yeah. He, you're crossing back and forth between, between the two personalities. The two personalities. It's amazing. Yeah, there's, with there's, a mirror. No, it's right up there with it's right up there with a the real change in, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, in love. Line. Exactly. He's he crosses the line on purpose. He uh uses you know split screen to to emphasize mm-hmm. the bifurcation. He uses mirrors through you know throughout its uh, Oh no no every one of De Palma's visual motifs is hit in Dress to Kill. Media inside of media. Yeah. Media inside of media yeah, inside but, of cinematic it, gags. Interestingly, yeah. in this case, though, usually the media inside of media, he creates both medias. In here, mm-hmm. he uses the real um, uh, Donahue. Yeah. Well, he could have come up with a, a phony guy. Yeah, but, all right, but and done he his own needs, talk show. But he, he makes, needs a touchstone into actual reality. Absolutely. To, to let everyone know, I know what reality I've done my is. Homework. Yeah. I know what I'm talking I about. I know what reality yeah. is. This is what we're going into is inside my brain. It's mm-hmm. like we're this is a this is a non-reality. And in fact, and that's only enforced by the heightened cinema. Yeah. And also just the use of mirrors, as we were talking yeah. about. I love that you realize kind of what's happening by the time that at the towards the end when he looks into the mirror and he becomes Bobby when he smiles when into he the smiles mirror. into the mirror you kind of realize and then you go back and you think about that time that he looked into the mirror before and it's just it's such a good tool that yeah. you're using the mirror to show the mirror personality and the mm-hmm. other side of yourself but even then but even then in that moment when uh, he looks in the mirror you think you there's a little tiny piece of you that thinks, oh, he's smiling because he's going to get lucky. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Because yeah. Nancy, that's what I thought when you, the, the young Roger I watching this movie. I thought that the very first the time. First time. And I so did the audience. There was a laugh yeah. in the yeah. audience. Oh, he's going to okay. get it. <laughs> Maybe Angie Dickerson didn't get it. All right. But uh, Nancy <laughs> Allen closed the deal. <laughs> and, and, then you've, and, then you, and then he has the female cop, you know, MacGuffin, uh, you know, the the female detective in the who's blonde. Betty Luce. Betty Luce, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, kind of what cr- a name. Cr- cr- Oh, good. A what bond, a great name. A Bond girl name for the ages. Yeah, Betty Luce. Betty Luce. <laughs> Creeping up behind Keith Gordon. And so in that moment, you're just you're like, the killer is going to get Keith Gordon now. And so it, it's he's walking the tightrope all the way to the end. It, that's why the script is so fantastic, frankly. But speaking about this whole thing of uh, the Palma methodology and mm-hmm. him carrying it through and maybe finding its finest home in, in this... He gave a really interesting uh, description of the entire last section together. He was saying that uh, he purposely structured it. So you've got the whole scene with Liz Blake and Dr. Elliot turning into Bobby and the whole leading up to it. Peter Miller looking through the window. And then just when it looks like it's going to happen, the cop shows up, shoots Bobby. Bobby goes down and, and the day is saved. And then De Palma goes... And at that point, I've disappointed the audience. They want to see her get sliced up. <laughs> they know they, they, they've been you've been jerked off through the. He actually said these words. I don't, I don't know if he used jerked off, but but you've been jerked off through this entire movie. <laughs> it would movie. be appropriate. It would be appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> you've been jerked off through this well, entire only movie. Doctor Elliot character, <laughs> yeah, not yeah, for exactly, Bobby. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You're uh, to expect this big ending, and then when Nancy Allen is just saved at the last minute by a cop. You're disappointed. They wanted more. They wanted more. They wanted to see her sliced up. And I don't know if they want to see her sliced up, but they wanted to elongate it more. They wanted a bigger sequence and, he, and they don't get it. And then he has the scenes that happen after it, are, which are telegraphing to an audience. Okay, no, we're wrapping it up. We're wrapping it up. We're wrapping it up. We're wrapping it up. Then it cuts to the insane asylum scene. And he said that the point was, after I've given you moments that they're wrapping it up, was for the audience to grab their raisinets, grab their popcorn, get ready 
to rise up and leave. And they go, oh, oh, hey, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. This looks this looks like it's not over. And then he has his real ending, mm-hmm. you know, where she gets to get sliced up, but still live through it. And also that actually, <laughs> you, you just reminded me, I'm getting goosebumps because the mirror specifically in her dream sequence at the very end when the hand with the straight razor comes out of the mirror yeah, yeah. and slices her, that is such an awesome moment. Yeah. The reuse of the mirror, the hand coming out, the straight razor. Yeah, because Bobby's been in the mirror the Bobby's whole time. Bobby's been in the so mirror the like, entire time. Like something out of what Twin a Peaks. great way to put it. Bobby, Bobby comes out and slices her throat. Yeah, it's I can remember seeing this film for the first time and I saw it with Scott, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and I vividly remember the moment because I was so freaked out by that final shower scene moment mm-hmm. and, and with her creeping out of the shower and seeing the mm-hmm. the razor and kind of slowly going for it and the shoes are kind of you mm-hmm. only see the tips of the shoes behind the door and then that shot where the camera kind of hovers over it kind of slowly moves over the shoes and we realize they're empty and I'm, to this day I can hear Scott saying She's jumped out of the shoes. She's not in the shoes. And it wasn't even that I registered what was happening on screen because the visual information was like affecting mm-hmm. my brain so intensely in, the, mm-hmm. in the, that moment because I was so terrified. But w- hearing Scott say, she's not in the shoes. Yeah. It was like every time I watch the movie in that moment, I hear Scott whispering yeah, that right, to yeah. me. And, I, and it scares me hearing him whisper that to me. <laughs> okay, so do you guys think that Bobby has escaped from the asylum or do you think that's part of the dream? Oh, no, it's all part of the dream. You think that's also part of the, the dream? The whole thing is a dream. Yeah, yeah. She's traumatized, like Carrie. She's well, traumatized. The whole thing is De Palma's dream and De Palma's reality. Well, no, De Palma made a point about it because actually when he said that in, in that interview I'm talking about, the interviewer goes, yeah, but you kind of tip it over that it's a dream when you see how Marat saw it and how like surreal the insane as- asylum is. Yes. And he goes, yeah, but I'm not a realistic director per se. <laughs> uh, you know? So that doesn't just tip somebody over that it's a dream sequence because I'm extravagant in my sequences. So that could be my real interpretation of, of an insane asylum. And I actually agree because it was very one flew over the cuckoo's nest, in my opinion. It, to be honest, I did not think it was a dream sequence the first time I saw it until she wakes up screaming. I didn't think so either because there's two scenes. You know, Carrie at the grave, we're all expecting he's going to do a dream sequence shock ending mm-hmm. but it's one scene at a funeral mm-hmm. and then she comes out this is like you're an insane asylum you're like it's a dream and then they cut to the pov you're like oh that wasn't a dream she's like actually escaped yeah, yeah, yeah. and now she's going to get killed so you're like oh this was a two-scene dream that's okay. the trick but now what's interesting is um i love it now but um i remember when i first saw it i saw dress to kill the day it opened i saw it the friday it opened at uh uh delama delama mall yeah. And I rarely did this. I I actually walked out talking out loud about my incredulousness about the movie. I couldn't believe he ended it like Carrie. Yeah. It was the same shot, the same, you know, Dinaggio staying, going as the camera rises. That's crazy. And and, and she's all flipped out. I literally walked out of the Delamo three theater. Pissed off. I'm not pissed off. No, I wasn't pissed Stunned. Off. Just, I was just, I was flabbergasted. I go, he ended it like Carrie. I can't believe he so, ripped off his own ending. He, I cannot so, believe, I cannot believe that's how it ended. Or is his movie an homage to Carrie and he's taking from 
you know, or is it the or is this the ultimate expression that he no problem with it? I think every other time I ever saw it. But the first time I saw it, I was flabbergasted that a director would would take his own ending from his own movie. That's that recognizable. Within less than five years, like four years later. It's like every time every every time uh, a trunk opens up in a Quentin Tarantino movie, there's a camera inside of it looking out at everybody staring in at the body on the inside. But if one of my movies were to end exactly the way another one. The last line is I'm a cop, you'd be wait a minute. Wait a minute here. Also, I love that De Palma actually includes Bobby earlier in the film at the museum sequence. Oh, no, we talked about that. Yeah, if you pause at 21 minutes and 39 seconds, you will see Bobby waiting there. And I love that. Well, you you guys always knew that. Yeah, I I knew it, but I, I think that is actually in that instance, I think that's Michael Caine. I think that. No, it's absolutely Betty Luce. I, it, yeah, yeah, no, it's absolutely better. Are you sure? I'm positive. He can't put Michael Caine in there. It's just too fucking obvious. Michael Caine in that pancake makeup. It's too obvious. <laughs> yeah, but she... It well, happens so fast. I mean, it's, in, it's Betty Lou. In the script, we'll watch it, 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 it right comes now. after. She gets in the car, they drive off, and then cut to Bobby's watching them and walks away. Yeah. Well, like, well Bobby takes the glove. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and picks up the glove and walks away. But I love that as a fan. I love like getting to like rewatch a movie. I just think it's awesome to rewatch something. And they go, oh my god, there's Bobby! Like oh, Bobby's no, it's, in the shot. I oh just, no, that's one of my favorite shots in the whole movie. Yeah. Is the pan from Angie Dickinson's gaze to the cab and passing by. Yeah, Bobby. and I like how Bobby is like turning to look as she's looking to see what she's looking at, mm-hmm. as we're turning to look to see what we're yeah, looking yeah. at. I mean, in a way, he's making us Bobby, mm-hmm. a, a, a dis- you know, a disembodied Bobby watching the same thing. So my favorite De Palma film is *Phantom of the Paradise*. I'm a huge fan of that movie. I listen to my record on repeat over and over and over yeah, again. Yeah, it plays all day in our house. I'm pretty I'm sure like, my dad will is... remember you forever. <laughs> yeah. It's like I just walked by Gala's room yeah. and I hear... Like, when I was like... in middle school, I even... <laughs> used, Goodbye, Eddie. Yeah. yeah, I even used Special to Me to audition for the school play. <laughs> so that's how I was. But Well, it's the great Paul Williams. Though. Yeah, and so this time when I'm watching, I actually heard... Bill Finley's voice. And I was like, oh my God, it's Bill Finley. Like, I didn't know that. He's uncredited. <laughs> I was so excited. And then Roger and I were talking about it. And he's also cross-dressing in Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah. So I kind of did a little bit of research of obviously, I'm sure we all know this, but De Palma and Finley were friends since college. Mm-hmm. Finley was in De Palma's first short, Wanton's Wake, where he is not in drag, but he is a perverted character that dresses in a gorilla suit. Mm-hmm. Um, in De Palma's first feature, Finley plays a prime red herring, but manages to dispatch the real killer by manipulating the body of one of his female victims. That's actually his second film, because the first film is a Wedding Party, which Ben Bill Finley is in with Robert De Niro. There's also a film version of a performance group staging of Dionysus 69. Bill Finley is not in drag, but he is doing what we will call Greek stuff um, in togas. (laughs) Oh, in togas. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, So it seems it was less about cross-dressing with roles with Bill Finley and De Palma, and more about gender fluidity in Finley's roles. Finley married his wife in 1975, stayed with her until his death. He has a child and no record of tryst or political activism for the gay community. Why did he voice for Bobby? Probably just a favor between friends. I think it's important for all viewers out there to know that this film has gone through constant reevaluation in the social opinion of it, Um, specifically with the transgendered character. There have been, I mean, I dug up several reviews from actual transgendered activists and reviewers um, all the way back from 1984 
the Criterion re-release in 2015 and now. I will save the reviews maybe for the after show later. If mm-hmm. unless you Yeah, we had them. on History of Horror, we did a deep dive. We had Alexandra Billings. Oh! Oh! You did that on your show, right? You're right. You did a deep dive. Uh, <laughs> we don't know what that is. Oh my God, I don't know what that is. Just so the listener knows what's going on, we had a whole conversation with Eli before the episode that on this show, we don't use phrases like hot take or deep dive. You did a, a detailed his, analysis. Did a you detailed did a analysis. Detailed on, analysis. History Har, on History of Horror, we did a detailed analysis. Uh, and Brian Fuller from Hannibal and Alexandra Billings. It was really interesting to hear their their point. And yeah, they yeah. love the movie, but obviously you can't, you know, you have to, for that community, they certainly want to address it, but it still doesn't stop their enjoyment of the film. Sure. So it, it didn't affect Brian Fuller's uh, appreciation of the film? No, he loves the movie. Okay, and, yeah. you know, and they, they talk about how, you know, how the, the Liz Blake character being normalized was way more controversial at the time. Mm-hmm. But sure. you sort of have to acknowledge what it's saying, but it's still, he, he loves De Palma so much and loves Blowout and Dress to Kill mm-hmm. that they almost don't want that to affect their enjoyment of the movie. I watched mine on Amazon. I rented it, uh, which means I actually did get to see the performance of uh, the woman. The, the Mary Davenport. The Mary uh, Davenport sitting behind uh, as they describe um, the procedure. That it's, the only, it's the only genuine loss, all right, from the video cassette yeah. is missing Mary Davenport's very funny reaction to the description of the uh, vaginoplasty for those in the know. I bought my VHS tape on eBay for $20. It is a Warner Home Video clamshell in 1984. My tape uh, is supposed to go in the horror section, Mm -hmm. whereas Quentin's goes in the adult drama section. Adult drama. Well, they changed their... Dress to Kill is fluid in a lot of areas, all right? Uh, beyond yes. sexuality. Genre is one of them. Including genre. <laughs> so I, I just want to make a point that the poster that's on the front of Gala's uh, Warner Brothers box, which is uh, the later version of Quentin's mm-hmm. uh, paper clamshell, is the French Metro poster mm-hmm. on the inside. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you may or may not remember, but uh, in the script for um, True Romance, made sure to include a French dress to kill poster. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Was in it. And uh while on set I pulled the poster, I kept it, mm-hmm. and I put it into Killing Zoe. Oh uh-huh. and so the same po- it's that poster which now hangs in my son's room. But the reason also is part of your wild time in France that inspired Killing Zoe yeah. at those junkies house was a big French poster for Dress to Kill. That's right. We always <laughs> just talk about that. I, I remember telling you, yeah they had this giant metro poster for Dress to Kill in their apartment. Like mm-hmm. I said you remember said like I walk out wow quick we really dig this place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, the, the story is I was traveling through Europe in uh, 1987. I was in Paris, hated it, and was on my way out when I bumped into a French friend of mine who I knew from UCLA. And so uh, he was like, oh, I'll show you the real Paris. And uh, took me and introduced me to all of his friends, you know, who I wrote in as mm-hmm. characters in Killing Zoe eventually. And in fact, this guy is in Killing Zoe. He plays yeah, the yeah. bellboy oh, uh-huh, eventually. Uh-huh. I, yeah, yeah, I yeah. saw him like well, when we were in pre-production. I was like, oh my God, you're going to play the bellboy in the movie. And he showed up and he was on heroin while shooting. Anyhow, now we do heroin. Yeah, and now we do heroin. Anyhow, we went over to their apartment because he was like, now we do heroin. Hold my arm. <laughs> like, and I go over to his apartment and they had this... and. It was like a junkie's apartment, except for the fact that they had this giant French dress to kill poster, which said Pulsians on it. Yeah. So from that moment on, I would tell, I came home and I immediately, of course, yeah. told Quentin about it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and so that it and found frankly, its way think, into every screenplay after that, yeah. I think, in an and, attempt to. And frankly, I think it was to some degree or another, 
It was the Video Archives crew reaction to your French escapade that led you to think that maybe I should turn this into a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roger takes a trip. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that was your title. Yeah, yeah, for that it. was the title for Roger takes a trip. You wanted to be you wanted it to be I probably should have called it Roger That's a Takes a good Trip. Title. It's, a, it's a good title. It's a good title. It's a good title. I mean, so whenever I look at the Pulsians poster, which actually I think hung in my daughter's it, No, no, it's it's in my brother's room. Right but now. but originally when you were like a child, like when you were oh, a baby God. in the crib, this was in my office and your crib okay, was in my office. Actually, we only had a two-bedroom okay, apartment. Wait, the, and and so there was this giant... Oh, so tell, describe well, the poster, which you were stared at as a baby. <laughs> the poster is a woman putting on her black stockings, presumably sitting on her tub, mm-hmm. as a man with a single black glove opens the door and he's just kind of creeping in. Actually, years later, you asked me, Gala, why do you not like to have your door open a crack? <laughs> And I told you, I'm terrified that someone's going to come in. And it's because this poster as a baby was hanging above yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. It's good parenting, right? Yeah, I know. I know. I, I've i apologized for that no, and a lot of other things. But, but here I am now. Yes, well. exactly. It's all as well. Yeah. Her world. Sensual. Dazzling. His world. Dangerous. Violent. Drawn by a mystery. Their lives converge. Fade on away, Tommy Lee Jones, Eyes of Laura Mars. A thrilling vision of romance and terror. Rated R. Eyes of Laura Mars, with co-hit Dress to Kill, will be playing Wednesday, October 19th and Thursday, October 20th at the new Beverly Cinema. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90036. Visit thenewbev.com for more information. The new Beverly Cinema, always on film. Always, always, always. Okie doke, and we're back. And now we're following it up with Irv Kirshner's Eyes of Laura Mars. So first of all, this is a uh, Columbia Pictures home entertainment clamshell case, which I haven't seen in a very, very long time. No, it's really unique. Uh, it's one of the most yeah. beautiful uh, you know, boxes of this sort, partly because the poster of Eyes of Laura Mars is such mm-hmm. a beautiful poster. And they, they lean heavily into that graphic Absolutely. Of, uh, of the eyes. And plus, it's got the kind of that beautiful catalog branding that Columbia Pictures did at that time with well, the kind of blue stripes. Well, here's the thing about it is I actually... Of all the studios that had their own kind of brand, not that one, but the what later RCA Columbia boxes became that kind of black and red. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, with, the, with, the, with the, the the blue border yes, around yes. it and the uh, RCA Columbia at the top. Mm-hmm. That's actually maybe my favorite of all the the studio like logo set up for a, a video box. Even though like we talked about how the, how great the Paramount ones are, but uh, but this is before they established that RCA Columbia thing where they were. Uh, I'm trying to remember the other white boxes we had of stuff like this, and none of them are coming to my mind yeah, right now. None are coming now. to my mind either, but this I one, this one stands one. out. Yeah, this yeah. one really jumps out. Also, it has no tagline, mm-hmm. so which is either classy or uh, they're, they're just going purely off of the title and that beautiful uh-huh. graphic at the beginning. So back of the box reads, Eyes of Laura Mars. Fashion photographer, Laura Mars, Faye Dunaway, world-renowned for her erotic portraits, of gossamer-gowned models in settings of urban violence becomes a focal point for a series of bizarre murders. The victims are all people Laura has known. Each murder is witnessed, and that's in quotes, by Laura in her mind's eye, as if through the lens of her camera. These terrifying experiences bring Laura together with an intimate relationship with a homicide detective, John Neville, Tommy Lee Jones, 
who tries to unravel the events that have taken control of Laura's mind. Eyes of Laura Mars comes out in uh, 1978. Uh, what number is it on the box? This is 8582, 85, which comes 82. late in the. Uh, um, yes, but I think we did. I think we had that for sure in the horror section. So that would be under the E's in horror. And as we were watching it, it was okay. Not only is it passing the test of being an American Jallo, truly could have been an Italian movie. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, 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 it's not a Jallo homage. No, it is practically a Jallo. This this exact movie, this exact screenplay could have been done in Italy with uh, Umberto Lenzi directing it. Yeah. I think one of the things we were all, it was so fun to watch, was the, the way the fashion shoots were staged so realistically yeah. in the Helmut Newton photography and the idea of violence and the lens of violence. I mean, it's really... But it does feel, it's so stylish. But I mean, but it is kind of fascinating when we're watching it. Nothing about the movie seems authentic from the police investigation to the portrayal of the cop to even the portrayal of her level of celebrity, especially not the gimmick of seeing through the killer's eyes randomly whenever they kill. But the one thing that is absolutely authentic is the direction of the photo shoots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That are laid out. There, there's no, there's nothing fanciful about them. They're exactly realistic. I've been on David LaChapelle photo shoots and they are just like what, what's pre- presented in Eyes of Laura Mars. Yeah, I, I would actually say that uh, it's done almost intentionally. They present those photo shoots, which is the fabrication of non-reality from mm-hmm. these visions that she's yeah. getting. They shoot them like verite style. Mm-hmm. It's like a real photo shoot that you're at. And mm-hmm. it really feels that way. And because Helmut Newton not only shot all the photographs, but probably also was consulting. Yeah, on, for the art direction. You know, what yeah, what a photo shoot would be like. Well, I kind of really, really get, and, I, and he shoots it in a kind of with long lenses, yeah. frequently from afar, as if we're watching like kind of reality. He's catching events. Mm-hmm. We're seeing deep, deep, deep shots where we see New York like running like, into I, the horizon. You know, but then also the way it captures a uniquely authentic but different high-class Manhattan than Dressed to Kill. This captures the disco Manhattan. And this movie has one of the best disco soundtracks of its era. Yeah, absolutely. But it does feel like this interesting mix of a Jallo film where it's the John Carpenter influence and a John Peters production Mm -hmm. with the Barbra Streisand song. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like you have this kind of big Hollywood feel Mm -hmm. about it with the movie stars and Mm -hmm. the... Streisand music and the photography, but also it's got John Carpenter yeah. slasher, well, stock and slasher. And then also just to just to make the point of it though, when I uh, when I saw the movie after the movie came out, I went and got the soundtrack album. Now I liked the Barbara Streisand song, but I got it for the ha ha a a. Let's all chance. That's why I got the record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your body, my body. body. But I mean, the, the whole idea of you. Know, um, I mean, if Giallo in any way requires a descent into a dreamlike realm, that's the purpose of shooting those so uh, verite style okay, is, but, to, is to kind but, of to, to contrast with yeah. how well, dreamlike the, the nightmare okay. moments are. Okay, well, I don't, I don't think we've described the storyline quite exactly well enough so far. So the idea is uh, Laura Mars has become this ridiculously famous celebrity 
for doing these. A name photographer. A, a name, name fashion a, photographer. A, a, but a, like, you know, but a, a, apparently a, a household name. Well, like you mean, you named David Chappelle. Like, it would be at that level. David, probably. Yeah. But I, she seems even more popular than that. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like she's been on the Tonight Show a bunch Annie of times. Lebowitz, and, Annie Leibowitz or something. Yeah. Right? I, she seems the, more famous than all of those guys <laughs> put together. <laughs> she's right? the yeah. photographer who has paparazzi photographers following, following her. her. Yeah. Well, yeah. she's reminding right. me. She's as famous as Faye Dunaway. And her work actually in is reminding me a lot of Stephen Mizell, which mm-hmm. he does a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, kind of outlandish, uh, you know, murder scene type yeah. stuff with the, up his alley. So she's a world famous celebrity photographer whose specialty is taking beautiful women and, you know, uh, uh, creating a, an aspect of, of, of murder to them. And that's how she sells the products. And then it becomes clear later in the movie that she's just has these wild random images of of murder and death and then she redoes them as 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 fashion layouts she redoes them as these art pieces that include these little flashes in the, her and head. the police have taken notice. Hey, these are really close. Yeah, to the actual yeah, murder, yeah, the poli- real crime scene photos. Yeah. Okay. Here's the real photo that happened at the uh, Mayflower Hotel, and then here's your photo shoot photo. Yeah. And Explain to me why they look exactly the same. Exactly. <laughs> and then because uh, this wasn't published. So this is going on, but then somebody in her circle is murdered. And when the murder in her circle happens, she actually is able to watch the murder. She sees through the POV of Of the the killer during the murder. They have a psychic connection of some kind. Yes. And then it happens again. And then it happens again. And they're killing her friends. And they're, they're killing off killing her friends. Everyone in well, her circle. And her entourage. And yeah. it's been happening apparently for a long time, which is how she's, you know, processing these images into her work, is that it's been coming to we her We don't realize that so much later. Well, been, yeah, and, right. and it hasn't ever been much more than just like, these are dreams or these are images that come to me. Now it's 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 gotten more and more intense, like as if whatever's causing it is getting closer to her. Well, as if, yeah, as if the killer realized, okay, I'm going to get caught. So yeah. it's starting to happen while she's awake. She's having waking dreams. Yeah. And it's disconcerting to her, aside from the fact that when she puts together what's going on, but it's also when she's seeing through the eyes of the killer, she can't see what's in front of her. She can only see the killer's eyes. blind otherwise. The killer never stops to look in the mirror. Which makes it really cool in one of the better scenes in the movie is when the killer goes to attack her and all of a sudden she sees through the killer's eyes, but she's seeing herself being chased. Yeah. Yeah. And she's running blind. Yeah. And that's- Which brings to mind the strange shadows in an empty room. Blind girl scene. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, it's got some of the great Jallo tropes of the cast of characters, the suspects, whether it's Renee Aubergenois, her kind of Brad Dorf, Dorf, Brad Dorf, Renee Aubergenois. Aubergenois yeah. is like kind of a very the sketchy, the agent. sketchy, the sketchy ex-husband, uh, Roger. Well, Julia. there's enough great like supporting roles in this. Enough great actors are coming in that you start wondering it could be anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The killer. Yeah. You don't know who it is. Every yeah. everyone's is and Brad, very much Brad like Happy Dorf. Birthday to me. They all take turns looking guilty. They all have a reason. And yeah, you, the guilty. audience member, you think you've got to figure it out. You're like, oh no, it's going to be him. But at a certain point, like Michael Tucker with his Gabe Kaplan afro, you're <laughs> like, well, maybe it's him because mm-hmm. he's kind of on the sidelines. Yeah. Like they really do a good job. And there's a moment where. To leave Renee, she's got the police tail. Mm-hmm. So to get off the scent of the police, to go to her crazy, you know, ex-husband, where you're like, oh, he's the killer. 
um, they switch Rene Aubergenois dresses in drag and she dresses like him. There's the double drag yeah. switch and then he gets murdered in drag. This is you know, an pre, almost a kind of re- dress reverse, to kill. Dress to kill, reverse like dress to kill, like an inverted dress to kill no, where he's he the one in drag getting get killed, killed in the elevator. In the Not elevator. to compare the two movies in quality wise, but like what's happening in Dress to Kill and what's happening in Eyes of Laura Mars could literally be happening three blocks away from each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. They are happening simultaneously three blocks away from each other. At any point, these lead characters could cross by yeah. Each other. Yeah, yeah. Kate just, Miller could totally walk by Laura Mars. Yeah. Oh, right. They would know each other. They're at the same party. They don't even know each same other. Yeah, they're at the same party. She'd be going to Laura I'm surprised Mar- Kate Miller isn't at the opening. Yeah. All right, of Isla Laura Mars. No, it's interesting with her husband. Yeah. <laughs> I remember liking Laura Mars better than I did when we watched it, uh, and I even saw it fairly recently, like within the last two years. I watched it with uh, uh, my wife Daniela because I thought she'd get a kick out of it, and she did. She liked all the fashion stuff going on. The model, um, but uh, <laughs> like, she is, and that's the justification for wanting to see a movie where you're chased by a madman. <laughs> she liked all the disco and the fashion shoot, and it makes sense. All right, uh, that's her world. Um, the first half is not a Jallo homage; it is a legit Jallo. This is exactly this is exactly the kind of screenplay you expect to come out of uh, Tatanas or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the John Peters part comes in where Tommy Lee Jones, who plays the cop and uh, Laura Mars, who plays the, the photographer are attracted to each other and they fall in love. And then right in the middle of the movie becomes a love story. Uh, Laura Mars throws her character completely out the window from that point on. It's just, everything is about love and devotion, love and devotion, love and devotion. And Tommy Lee, Lee Jones seems to throw his character out the fucking window. All right. Uh, uh, he's all about her than as, as about the, the case. Well, one could say that he kind of fills the emptiness in her life of having like, like a real male protector. I would agree with all that, except I mean, her lines, her dialogue literally is reduced to, oh, I love you so much. Oh, I love you so much. I I, I adore you. I can't live without that you. Moment yeah. feel, that I I that get, moment feels rushed in the movie. Yeah. yeah the yeah. other cops, the way they sort of <sighs> like, yeah, it's a little weird. I guess Lieutenant's really getting in there. You know, they just you sort mean of like have, Frank Adonis. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Frank Adonis. <laughs> the, the, the beautifully named Frank Adonis. Frank Adonis. Yeah. As Sal Volpe. Yeah. They have to <laughs> the just like cops. sort of make jokes Only about it. Like the actor's name is actually more cliche than his character's cliche name. <laughs> yeah, but they have to sort of make jokes about it and not act like it's weird that they're now a thing in the middle of this like yeah. murder investigation yeah. as people are getting knocked off. Yeah. But they're like, hey, you're sleeping with the famous photographer. Okay. What about so, us? So while all <laughs> that is a complete crock, in a weird way, it proves as subterfuge when it actually turns back into a jello again, more of a jello than it's ever been before. Yeah, because, when, when it comes to the wrap up. <laughs> yes, it actually is the setup for something even so batshit crazy that even the jello films like, wait a minute, oh, well, yeah, this is more of a rosso. This is yeah. even a jello. <laughs> but there's a one great scene. They do they do certain things that there's the murder that happens and everyone gets dragged to the police station. Rene yeah, Aubergenois. Yeah. Um, no, that's a great know, sequence. Like, and then you see the models and they do the classic New York tracking shot across the faces of what would be prostitutes in a lot oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah but they're all models and, and they're, they're like, almost look, indistinguishable and they're all dressed up like prostitutes because yeah. like, it looks like a versace shoot when you put them on the streets of fifth avenue with steam and a flipped over car it's a fashion shoot but yeah. you put them in the police station the same people all look like, and they and they're acknowledging it they're like we look like hookers in here yeah, like they, they actually no, had to give them a line so that we would know that they weren't hookers it's so great look the first 35 minutes of this movie is flawlessly directed. There's not a, there's not a misstep in it as far as I'm concerned. It, 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 it holds that dream yeah. for about 35 minutes. And then the wonky plotting, 
gets involved Catch and then yourself. the wonky to it, you know, but then, you know, I don't know if it's good, but it's kind of great the way it comes back <laughs> and for its final, for its final climax. Okay. So I'm going to ruin the end. I was almost wondering about, maybe we shouldn't reveal this, but actually it's the thing about the movie that's worth talking about. It's what makes it jello. It's what makes it jello. This could be a, um, a jello trope, but it's also just a trope of, of wannabe thrillers where you have, um, the boyfriend, fiance, husband character, who's been completely straight and legit the entire movie. Through a crazy monologue, he has to reveal that now he is the killer. And it's usually accompanied by a me-so-crazy performance that the actor has not given up until now. And um, Tommy Lee Jones in this movie does my second favorite me so crazy uh, uh, monologue reveal for that type of character. My favorite is Paul Michael Glazier's me so crazy performance reveal in John Huston's Phobia, which could almost be a jello as well. No, it's amazing because he's such a good actor. And then you're just like watching him have to stuff in the crazy in one scene. Yeah. And then like, with it's a, completely out of with nowhere. With a ridiculous backstory that would have made uh, Ernesto Gastaldi proud. Yeah. With an absolutely crazy, ridiculous backstory. And, and to be honest, as long the as we're revealing a backstory, so, a backstory so crazy, that's what reveals to Faye Dunaway he's the killer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, at the same time, I'm still kind of confused about the backstory, to be honest. Is he the father like he's obviously has a schizophrenic personality is it the father that caused it that has replaced him it, it, yeah i think so like I, look it's not for sure nothing's for sure you're having you're having to figure it out for sure he's a schizophrenic when he's a cop he do, he doesn't know he's the killer when he's the cop he's actually looking for the killer but then he switches his personality he becomes his father who mm -hmm. is out there committing violence against prostitutes and even at the end, when he's, he's going to kill Faye Dunaway, he basically puts the knife up to him and just says, kill him, kill him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, like, kill my other half. And there's also a whole other yeah. thing. There's also a whole other thing because the father killed the mother. How dare anybody take this type of murder and try to sell products with it? Yeah. 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 Commercialize right. it. Commercializing yes. it. But, in the, but just like in Dress to Kill, the character is a complete schizophrenic that does not know that two personalities are existing inside of one person. It's a little movie like, I guess Hollywood movie like, a little John Peters like, to to in the end have the kill me thing, as if you were flipping back and forth between yeah. the killer who will kill her and the guy who well that's who, the, who that's is willing to sacrifice the, himself and his actually that's them trying to hold on to the love story yeah. very, very desperately. All right, right up to the very I'm end. Too desperate. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like too strong. I I I I'm like too strong. <laughs> Yeah, that's, a, that's an Irish Spring reference. I got it. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I alone got it. <laughs> I've got a review for Eyes of Laura Mars from uh, the Movie Tone News, which was uh, the film journal that the Seattle Film Society used to come out with. It's issues number 58 and 59 uh, from August 14th, 1978. It's, uh, Richard T. Jameson, who's their editor. Give John Peters full credit. He's honest with his audience. At the beginning of A Star is Born, a voice called out, advising, all you assholes out there, that the show wasn't about to get underway until everyone quieted down and John and Barbara proceeded to treat their public accordingly for the rest of the film. 
Not that a goodly portion of the public seemed to mind. <laughs> Gee, Barbara called me an asshole. I have arrived. Peter's credit on Eyes of Alarm Mars is preceded by a spacey model's muttering, Gross! <laughs> Yes, my dear, Eyes of Laura Mars is pretty gross. And in deference to memories of the good films director Irvin Kirshner once made, I'd prefer to lay most of the blame at Peter's door. Clearly, we are not dealing with a movie here. This is a producer's package, a market research gratification kit ripe for a fast-saturation merchandising. We need a classy careerist dame who takes fashion pictures. Get done away. She's hot thanks to her network Oscar, and she looks as if she fits the milieu. The pornography of violence is a very heavy media trip right now. Get Helmut Lang to take the actual satin and bloodstained photos. Laura Mars is supposed to have done. Looking for Mr. Goodbar was full of mirror shots. <laughs> My kid brother's film professor says they have something to do with deranged psyches and like that. So I'll have a lot of those too. <laughs> yeah, like because that. get this. <laughs> We've got a derangement for you. The fashion photographer has this very kinky thing going where she's plugged into the perception of this really weird killer. So that's suddenly zap. She's seeing through his eyes as he closes in on his next victim. Matter of fact, it's been happening for some time. <laughs> and that's where her controversial, it turns out, it turns me on, but is it art photo ideas have been coming from? And she's only just picked up on the condition because of now the guy is selecting his victims from among her subjects. In her new coffee table book called Are You Ready for This? The Eyes of Laura Mars. <laughs> and doing them in with an ice pick through the eyes. I tell you, Manny, it's relevant. It's now. And this is the beauty of it. You won't be able to tell the movie from the ad art, which will make everybody happy because they'll know they bought exactly what they set out to buy. You know, he's being super, super crass. Yeah, yeah. And the things he's being crass about are some of the best things in the movie. Yeah, Helmut Lang's contribution to the movie is fantastic. Mm -hmm. That Faye Dunaway was a you know knows how to uh, behave in front of the camera like a model mm -hmm. works in the favor of the the reality of all of that works in the favor. In fact, the fact that it's a package mm -hmm. that John Peters packages it. It might be one of the better things John Peters has done. I agree with that because no, it, yeah. it's what he knows. No, he knew what he was doing on this. You know, he made, you know, you know, like, you know, he made the exact, I think he made exactly the movie he wanted to make. He totally made exactly yeah. the movie. And, and, and he was powerful enough to bring in guys like, you know, Helmut Newton. The killer's motivation, <laughs> forgive the archaic term, <laughs> becomes a hilarious mishmash as one syndrome succeeds another with the speed of a shudder. Though even this might have been an intriguing idea if Kirshner and the actor in the guilty role could have handled the quick change transitions from mood to mood within an integral mise-en-scene. Besides playing similarly fast and loose with the inherent ambiguity of the film medium, Eyes of Laura Mars earns our contempt for wasting the special qualities of Faye Dunaway, an actress who seems doomed to lurch into empty effect whenever she is handled with less than inspiration, as in Bonnie and Clyde, Chinatown, The Three Musketeers, and not much else. Network being the sole instance of her playing a part with mere solid professionalism. If Irvin Kirshner hand is positively in evidence anywhere in this atrocity. It is probably in the marginal behavioral games played between Rene Ujamois as Laura's agent and Michael Tucker as Bert, a hanger-on to a, I'm not sure what purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Richard T. James. <laughs>
So I have a Shock Cinema magazine uh, from spring 2004, issue number 24, that has an interview with Irv Kirshner. And so they're talking to him about his career. And then the, the interviewer goes, uh, I wanted to ask you about Isalora Mars. I know uh, John Carpenter wrote that one. Kirshner, oh, I threw that script out. <laughs> <laughs> oh I was set up to do the picture and I read that script and I said, no, <laughs> I just thought it was awful. <laughs> and a week later, John Peters came to me and he said that they wanted me to make it. So I said, if you want me to do it, I'll have to make changes. And he said, okay, okay, do it, do it. So I hired a writer and we started rewriting the script until there was almost nothing left from the original. I didn't like the Carpenter script. It had a lot of violence and it had no meaning. It just wasn't mysterious. It was just full of violence. I put the fashion business in it. That wasn't there before and it gave it a tone. Oh, really? Yeah. Without that, it was nothing. So I tried to give it a form and, and also thought the actors were very good. But the hardest part was working on the script. The writer that I was working with had a heart attack. So he left the picture before we even started, and we had to get another writer, and we had to continue working on the script while we were shooting to get it right. God, poor heart attack guy never uh, <laughs> yeah. got credit. <laughs> we changed almost everything in the script. The only thing that they had in common was that they were about women who had visions. Nothing else remained. The dialogue, the characters are different. Everything's different. But he does make good pictures, John Carpenter. Different kinds of pictures than the ones I make. I'm much more interested in characterization. Yeah, maybe you've heard of my film, Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, I was kind of on Irving Kirshner's side until I heard that uh, interview. <laughs> I was a fucking dick. <laughs> well, he didn't want to do a movie of a script he thought was trash. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting about that, though, is if all of that's true, Carpenter was obviously you know, giallo influenced. Mm -hmm. And Irving Kirshner's like, no, it's a mystery. It's a this, no, it's you're, a that. No, wow, that's really and well so said. Enough, there probably was much more giallo. It yeah. would have been even more giallo influenced if they had done Carpenter's and version. And the influence, enough is still there just by osmosis in, as one, okay. as it transfers. Okay, nevertheless, without having read John Carpenter's script, I have to be on Kirshner's side because it's the whole fashion model aspect is, is the part that works. This yeah. might require a little bit of CSI work on my, uh, yeah. on my part, I might uh, have to dig out the to find uh, John Carpenter's Roger. script for eyes. Yeah, because eyes. no eyes. Are eyes. eyes. <laughs> yeah. I have a Psychotronic magazine uh, issue number fourteen, and it has an interview with uh, Brad Dorff in it on a cult mystery directed by Irv Kirshner. He played fashion photographer Faye Dunaway's ex-con chauffeur. This is him talking. That was the first bad boy I played. He wasn't really wicked. He was just an ex-con. He was actually a sympathetic character. We spent two weeks rewriting it. It never really quite got rewritten right. <laughs> there was a lot of tension on the set. I enjoyed her, in a way, a lot. I also enjoyed working with Tommy Lee Jones. I don't think the two of them enjoyed working with each other, though. Mm. It was just very unsure. Nobody was really quite sure of the material, and they were right. The material had problems. Those of us who weren't involved in all of the bad stuff were having a great time, actually. You know, it's great to be in New York. <laughs> I was young. I was surrounded by really gorgeous women. <laughs> I stayed at the Hotel Navarro, which was kind of a really wild hotel. And by then, I knew a lot of people in rock and roll, and people used to come into my hotel suite and play all night. God. I had a real party going. God, I love Brad Dorf. <laughs> that makes me love Brad Dorf even more. <laughs> that is so awesome.
And now we are joined by Gala Avery. Hey, guys. I really liked Eyes of Laura Mars. I keep wanting to call it The Eyes of Laura Mars, and I keep having to remind myself there is no the at mm-hmm. the beginning. It's just Eyes of Laura Mars. Faye Dunaway is lit so beautifully in this movie. Yeah. How Victor Kemper lights her eyes is just, it's like old cinema. It's yeah. Beautiful when you watch it, especially since the movie is all about her eyes. I mean, they better be lit well. Eyes are like a prisoner, I'm captured by your eyes. <laughs> Continue, Gala. Yeah. If, if, if you dare. Eyes by Laura Mars, voice by Quentin Tarantino. The visual storytelling is really beautiful in this. This is actually, I've heard that this is the movie that George Lucas saw that allowed Kirshner to direct Empire Strikes Back. Still the best Star Wars movie, yeah. in my opinion. So for any of you Star Wars fans out there, you should watch this movie too, because it might give you a little bit of taste. Well, into- one of the, well, it's one of the, it's famous because it didn't get that many great reviews, but one of the big reviews that it got uh, that was laudatory was uh, Paul and Kale gave it a rave. And it was one of those reviews of people who don't like her used against her from time to time. Mm. And they would ask her question, ask her, so what is it about Azalea Laura Mars? You know, in a, a Q&A and she'd just shut them down all right, and, and explain why she liked Azalea Laura Mars so much. Yeah, and you guys brought up the great supporting cast. I mean, Renee Aubergenois, who's from Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, Raul Julia. Udo. Oh, yeah, Odo. Udo. Yeah, Ra- uh, Raul Julia, who's awesome in this movie. Brad Dourif, who... Also on Star Trek. Yeah, Brad Dourif, if you're listening, I love you. Mm. Like, you're one of my favorite actors of all time. So getting to see him, especially, this is one of his earlier roles. And, when I, I mean, he plays Chucky. And then in... Voice of Chucky. Voice of yeah. Chucky. And then in a lot of later roles, he's playing the villain. And so in this... As a later time viewer, it was really special to have myself think, oh, it's Brad Dorf. He must be the killer. Well, he must be in like Exorcist 3. You know, he's always playing these mm-hmm. kind of, he's the creepy guy. Yeah. 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 In Velvet. Yeah. In Star Trek Voyager, he plays Suter, crewman Suter. Okay. No, no, who's a serial killer. Just so you'll know, when I was a kid, he was my character. He was my, if, if, if Keith Gordon was your character. Yeah, he would have been your entry into Eyes of Laura Mars. Yeah, exactly. Because I always remember thinking, oh, I could have been, I could have played that role well. All yeah. right. You know, but that he became my favorite character. I was rooting for him not to be the killer because I liked him so much. Yeah. <laughs> but I just love being able to watch a movie and have an actor that's now typecast not be typecast in that role because yeah, yeah. it, it tricked me. And I was like, oh, yay, he's not the villain because I yeah. actually got fooled. No, no, he almost has the Klaus Kinski role in uh, Edgar Wallace, German Crimin. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I loved him in it. Um, and also when you guys were talking, it actually reminded me because that scene when she's running away from the killer, I was just like, why doesn't she just look back and like see who the killer is? And then I was like, oh, wait, she's like seeing through the killer's eyes. Yeah, she even if she looks to. back, she wouldn't be yeah, able she's to. She's only going to see herself because that looking was, back. Like, the one kind of stupid thing I thought she did in the movie. And then I was like, oh, duh. It's the whole entire plot device, which mm-hmm. I actually really liked. I was able to suspend my disbelief. I had a lot of fun thinking the idea about then, it. And the fact that, that well, back then, this the, the idea of portraying cubism to an audience, you had to explain it. Like, they had to go through that whole explanation scene with a camera to show. The what, television. Actually, that's yeah. the only television part about scene. that whole thing that I liked. I liked the whole description to Tom Lee Jones. That's but they, what they, I, see. I see this, and the hand and the camera bands to yeah. that. Okay, now it, was, now it was funny. That 
that's one of the that was obviously one of the selling points to yeah. to to get the whole movie going was Carpenter's idea that you uh, you could uh, uh, see through the killer's eyes. That's my least favorite element in the film is that it doesn't ruin the movie. It doesn't stop it. They they do a fair enough job with it, but it's my least favorite, even though it's the linchpin and on the day. Yeah, it's it's the reason for the reason they writing the and movie. making the movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's so funny because I love it because, I mean, we revealed who the killer is. So yeah. we all know it's Tommy Lee Jones and his split personality. And I love it because when they finally make love, they talk about you don't meet your soulmate. You recognize them. And it's kind of in a weird way also, like, you don't meet your killer, you recognize your killer. Yeah. So it's this weird, like, dichotomy. And I don't know, I just, like also the fact, like, they're soulmates, their souls are connected, they can see through each other's eyes, they are one. I don't know. It was this weird kind of romantic plot device that I uh, approved of. Well, you know, one of the things about the film that... Uh, it's a funnier movie when you've actually seen it once and you know who the killer is when you watch it, because... They really have a lot of fun with the scenes between Tommy Lee Jones and Faye Dunaway talking about this and that and the other. Then all of a sudden his eyes go crazy <laughs> as he says something or here's a piece of information and then comes back. <laughs> Which if you know the movie, you go, oh, okay. And, then he, and he talks in metaphor, he talks in killer metaphors constantly if you know he's the killer. That's, yeah. that's so good because like with Dress to Kill earlier, it's like rewatching it, you find something new upon your rewatch. That's so important in movies. That, okay, but like, Dress to Kill is such a classier but, version. Okay. <laughs> you know, one thing that, uh, Quentin, you just briefly mentioned that we kind of flew right over without really talking about it too much. I mean, this is coming from John Carpenter. Yeah. Let's talk about that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's like. Well, the thing about it was, it was interesting. It's like uh, he, he wrote this script and he showed the script to John Peters, who wanted to establish himself as a, a, a big time producer, which he would eventually, uh, after Star is Born. Basically, to come out of the shadow of uh, Barbara, Streisand. Barbara Streisand. And he gets this script, which was then called just Eyes. Right. Uh, not Lies, but the Wheat Brothers, <laughs> but Eyes. Um, John Peters reasoning, uh, well, I think he just hears the idea. And he goes, that's going to be Barbara Streisand's next movie. And so he gets the script, buys it, and designs it to be a Barbara Streisand vehicle. She decides that it's not really what she wants to do following Star is Born, but she supports John Peters anyway. He gets like the next biggest female lead of uh, Faye Dunaway. I think this is Faye Dunaway's follow-up to Network, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you know, But he gets Barbara Streisand to do the theme song. She did one or two other. She did a TV movie and then something else just before. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, she did the Amy Simple McPherson. That's right. That's, right. That's right. No, then she made another, it's not a jowl, it's more of a horror film, Yentl. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Eyes of Laura Mars was released under a different title in Boston. Mm-hmm. It was Eyes of Laura Maz. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, you see Eyes of Laura Maz? Yeah. Wicked scary, kid. I saw it in the Hobbit Yard. <laughs> yeah, dude. Eyes of Laura Maz. Fuck yeah, buddy. Yeah, and the visual storytelling I find really beautiful in this film, but the ending... The reveal was really cool, but the ending of like, oh, kill me, kill me. And then her on the phone with the 911 operator, I felt a little bit let down. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just, it didn't really like sell it. There was this big buildup and that's what I was left with. It literally is just Tommy Lee Jones, me so crazy performance. <laughs> yeah. All right. Out yeah. of the blue. All yeah. right. That makes it work. I mean, him it. jumping through the window, like <laughs> yeah, it's a great. wildcat. Yeah. But, the, but what that should have been the setup was she should have like, don't do it. Shoot him. He struggles. He falls down and goes through a taxi cab. Like you're in a high rise with a broken window. It was such a setup for 
for a body fall for and, a splat yeah, 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 yeah. and a big ending. And they probably brought that David Goodman in, as I'm thinking about it, to write probably because of Straw Dogs, because he had worked on yeah. Straw Dogs. I think uh, my, maybe, my guess- I, mean, I like yeah. Logan's Run. That's yeah. a great script. My guess is Goodman was brought in to turn it into a love story. Right. Yeah, that right. feels right. That makes sense. Yeah. I feel like sense. if- Car- turn, turn it into the John Peters movie that Peters wanted and that Faye Dunaway wanted. Right. I feel like if Carpenter had- They were keeping it classy, but if Carpenter had directed it, you could see him- the ending would have been he falls out the building, he lands, he two cars crash, <laughs> and the camera would have pulled back, and he literally would have been in one of the murder scene photographs of her fashion yeah. shoot. Yeah, that's and a it, great and ending. A, and a New York Post guy like stops by, and all these people are some Ouija guy, Ouija. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then the so ending would have been Kubrick, and that would have <laughs> that would have tied the whole thing. And when I direct the remake of Lies of Laura Mars, that's how I made it. <laughs> that's that a, was, a lack of that's prison a Record that. We're, we already have recording the theme song, so yeah. Quentin Tarantino. Done. We're using that. I'm you telling you, Eli, that's a great, that's a much no, better ending. That's, that's a great ending. But that's what the ending, I was thinking about it. It's like, that's what the ending should have been. You're setting up for this whole thing with crime scene photos and the I reveal and the killer. He should have fallen out in some grotesque street. A car flips over, catches on fire, and you pull back and you realize that he has created his own yeah. version. And then she sees it. Or she could be sees, photographing it. Well, she sees it in her mind and then someone come on the street photographs it. Yeah. Like, and it's it's the he's yeah. become part of a murder tableau. Yeah. That's the problem. That's the ending I want, and mm-hmm. I didn't get it. We'll reshoot. And that's the ending yeah. that gave us Alice Wood Alice gave us twice. Yes. Gave us twice overhead shots yep. of people on fucking sidewalks with blood. Yeah. Well, if anybody <laughs> Spray at, that. if anyone at Sonia Columbia is listening. <laughs> We can give you a call. <laughs> um, I actually managed to get a Columbia. They call it an early release, a Columbia early release white clamshell, just like Quentin's, mm-hmm. for $99.99. Mm. Wow. Just short of a hundred. Just short of a hundred. Um, it is so. I feel like you need to clean that off a little. It, yeah, yeah, like yeah, You yeah. need to wipe it down. It's that box is sticky. From I don't know why. Yeah, no, but it's, it's a little it's, disturbing well, that somebody's you, copy. Thank is those, you for those, handing me the sticky <laughs> box. Here's the sticky box. <laughs> no, but those clamshells start to molt after a yeah, while. Yeah, they vulcanize. They vulcanize. Yeah. You know, like they just get stickier. Yeah, but it's just it's beautiful. And also, when you open Especially up the tape, when you've not the tape, your hands. the tape still also has that beautiful blue typeface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just. Gorgeous and just her eyes and yeah. I don't know. It's not even black and white. It's like yeah. black and blue. But one of the things that's so great is like there's there's on it is like a little yellow sticker that says Carpenter because obviously in our may we suggest section, which every week we would choose something else. We obviously had a John Carpenter uh, 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 retrospective going on that week. And so we put Carpenter on there so people would know that this was a Carpenter movie so we wouldn't put it back into the yeah, into Or maybe the there's a Carpenter section at some point. No, 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 no. It was, no, it was our may we suggest every week. Yeah. We, yeah. Uh, this guy, this genre, this whatever. So this is literally left over from our Carpenter week that we had that we never took off. <laughs> it seems like a riff on Franju, the Eyes Without a Face poster. Yeah, yeah. Which it must have been for the time. I remember yeah. when we did uh, movies to get stoned to, and we all these Manhattan Beach mothers were complaining, like, yeah. "You, what is this section here?" Yeah. <laughs> so then Roger changed it to the feed your head section. Yeah, the, yeah. Right. Well, I still have head. that card. I yeah, still have that card that you draw. <laughs> that has like because I used to draw all the little cards. Yeah, exactly. So it's like a, a, one of the, that, that you know that little character that Roger draws yeah, all looks like yeah, Roger. I, okay. yeah. So it's the Roger character, and he's got a. a <laughs> A syringe stuck in his arm. He's eating black tar heroin. He's smoking a big fat joint, and he's got all, <laughs> all these pills drugs. and uh, cocaine. 
played, yeah. and played the about. And then the word balloon is, oh my God, what has my life become? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's my social satire. <laughs> Make sure to stay tuned for next episode of the Video Archives podcast, where we'll be continuing our discussion on American Giallo with Alice Sweet Alice and Happy Birthday to Me. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richman and Gala Avery. Our engineer is Devin Torrey Bryant, and our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Muellam. Find out more about the show by heading to videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Video Archives and on Instagram at Video Archives Pod. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 